Everybody, welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Time for DC Spotlight it's for the week of February eighth, twenty twenty two. DC's back to its uh, voluminous ways, I guess we'll say. Last oh, week, so many we comics. Had, yeah, I think we only had nine books last week. This week, we're back up to I don't know sixteen. I think it is. And not only that, we, one of them is the hol, hol, uh, Valentine special, so holiday special. So that's got a bunch of stories. We've got. Uh, We've got Batman Urban Legends. That's you know the equivalent of at least three books, if not more. Uh, the Suicide Squad Blaze uh, start the start of that series, a Black Label book, is over fifty pages. So, yeah, there was a lot of a lot of content this week. Um, some of it good, some of it mm, maybe not so much. What do you think, Rock? Yeah, it was uh, you know a lot of bat, you know. Good amount of Batman, but uh, you know, there's, I've still there's there's a lot to like here. I you know there's a lot to like, but I'm gonna be there's a, rants and raves. You know, I'm I'm gonna be ranting a little bit on a, on a, more than a few of these titles. Uh, no, definitely a few of them I'm be ranting on, but there's a couple of raves too. So I suppose it's typical. I mean, it's I mean a, again a lot of comic books, a lot of comic books. So good lord, man, that's why we gotta you know it's a Time. Good thing I do this uh, when we try to, uh, you and I, we always try to start doing this early. You know, sometimes we should maybe break it up, but like, you know, thank God I've, I got, I got the Coke. I got this, I got the salted peanuts here and the Coke and the crown and, you know, even a little bit of water as a backup here. So the only thing I need is a toilet under me. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to pause to go to the washroom, but <laughs> yep. that takes a long yep. time to do these things in detail. Wow. It does. It does. Uh, you know, and I, yeah. So, all right, well, that being said, let's get started. We'll kick it off with Black Manta number six. This is the final issue. I have to say, I'm glad it's the final issue. I'm glad this is over. It's from writer Chuck Brown. Matthew Dow Smith does the art for this particular issue. Marisa Louise on colors, Clayton Cal on letters. This is the second issue that we've had in Matthew Dow Smith. Uh, Valentin Delandro did the others. Uh, Prelude to Aquaman. It, it picks up right where the last issue left off where uh where black manta is is with you know this new villain the devil ray and it's really paint by the numbers there's nothing here that really happens that you don't expect you know of course black manta is able to outsmart devil ray of course black manta you know he he's been doing this for a while this upstart devil ray character who in a lot of ways is inspired by black manta and i i do appreciate that i do appreciate um, Chuck Brown trying to add some legacy to that character, the anti-hero aspect and, and uh, making Black Manta the protagonist didn't work for me as well. I didn't enjoy that aspect as well as the fact you're bringing some legacy into Black Manta. Uh, I, I can go either way on, on uh, creating heritage for him and saying he's descend, uh, a descendant of uh, Ant Atlanteans how that's going to play out, I guess we'll have to wait and see. We, we get at the end, you know, Black Manta's adventures continue in Aquaman. How, how that's going to play out, we don't know as well. So, you know, we'll just have to sort of wait. But in the end, with what happens here, I end up just wondering, why does this series exist? Like, 
I won't go so far as to say who's asking for a Black Manta series because I think Black Manta is popular enough to to warrant his own series. But I wish that it had been more leaning into, okay, Black Manta's a bad guy. Black Manta's a pirate. Black Manta robs, you know, ships. He commits piracy on the high seas. Like, that That could have been exciting. Now, you know, I'm not privy to any or- editorial instructions. Maybe the whole reason this exists is because editorial went to Chuck Brown and said, hey, we need you to write a story that introduces a couple of concepts. Um, Black Manta needs to be revealed as having Atlantean heritage, and he needs to get infected with this orculum or whatever whatever it's called. So, again, I, I don't know. It's, 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 it's not that great. I, you know, I hate to say it. I'm a fan of Black Manta. I think Chuck Brown's a talented creator, talented writer, but this just didn't land for me. Um, I, I feel like he did try to lean into the relationship between Black Manta and Jackson Hyde a little bit, which I, I imagine would be a, an important aspect of an, uh, an Aquaman series if they're both in it. Um, but that that aspect of the story didn't get played up much either. I mean, at the end, at the end of this uh, issue, there's a scene where we see Black Manta has this letter that he's written um, to Jackson. You know, what, what will be my legacy? And then he just delete he deletes it. Okay, why? Like his his emotions, his feelings for his son. I understand that they're complicated, but we never we never explored that. And the oraculum, uh, or, or oracle come. I can I, I? I wish they. I wish they provided us with a, a pronunciation guide for what this is called. You know, orichacalcum, orichacalcum. I, I don't know. Um, that's an interesting concept as well, but again, not not fleshed out. Maybe that's the point of the Aquaman series. Maybe this is a, a prelude to what's coming in the in the Aquaman series. I, I plan on picking up the Aquaman series, so I guess we'll see. But but ultimately. I just felt like I'm not sure that this series accomplished what it set out to, to accomplish. And like we, you and I have both said throughout the artwork just throughout, um, it just wasn't that strong. It, it just wasn't that strong. Really, really muddy artwork. Um, even the transitions from panel to panel aren't that great. They're not, they're not terrible in this issue. They're, they're, you know, they're not the worst I've seen in this, even amongst this series, but they're not great either. Um, not getting a, a good sense of, uh, of flow, you know? And I, I think that's been the case throughout this series. Just the story just didn't, didn't flow. Um, so for me, this was a, a miss and I wouldn't be surprised if, if it's quickly forgotten, unfortunately. So, uh, what were your thoughts, Rocky? Well, the, the the most polite thing I can say about this, uh, and I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try because I was, uh, I've been pretty hard on Black Manta as, as a narrative. I think, I think I know, I think you and I both know what uh, writer Chuck Brown has been trying to do. He's trying to make a, a Black Manta into an antihero uh, because Black Manta has always been fairly often one dimensional in his motivations, and that is he's always been obsessed with killing Aquaman, which is really kind of silly after a while you know i mean i mean you got there's got to be more to him than that and uh, i think some of this is chuck brown maybe has been a little bit successful here but he's absolutely not been helped with the art at all i think the art has been less than good 
And uh, I mean, I, I know when the art's been less than good. When I hesitate to even say the name of the, of the artists because I don't want to, I don't want to badmouth the artists. But the art hasn't been that great. And I think actually, I actually think the coloring that the colorists have saved some of the visuals in these issues because the coloring makes up for the lack of the line work with the pencils on a lot of these pages. It's unbelievable, but it is what it is. But uh, what the, the, the bad guy throughout this is Devil Ray. Devil Ray used to work, used to be a Manta Man, used to work for a Black Manta. Black Manta used to have a bunch of Manta Men working under him. And I think what really hit home here for the character of Black Manta is that Black Manta is a little bit embarrassed because Devil Ray's motivations for being a jerk and a genocidal maniac are about as one-dimensional as Black Manta's is in wanting to kill Aquaman all the time. And I think, frankly, he's a little bit embarrassed about it. In fact, at the very end of this series, uh, he says to Devil Ray, you know, uh, uh, you know, don't do, you know, don't be like me, you know, don't be like me, Devil Ray. Don't let your life be filled with blood and hate. Well, Wow. That's quite a that's quite a, a revelation. That's that's quite an acknowledgement from from Black Manta to actually say that to Devil Ray. Now he still lets Devil Ray get away. He doesn't even chase him at the end. He says, "Oh, don't worry, we defeated him." He prevented Devil Ray from blowing up Atlantis because De- I mean the the again the, the motivation here. Devil Ray's got this plan to literally destroy Atlantis, kill all the people in Atlantis, and then take over Atlantis. That's really it. I mean, uh, that's kind of, I mean, this is, and, and he wanted, he wanted Black, you know, and he wants to kill Black Manta because he initially worked for Black Manta and he, he was inspired by Black Manta, but then he realized that he shouldn't have been inspired because Black Manta was just all talk and was just too obsessed with Aquaman. And well, why didn't you know that up front? And it's just really weird. And, but the more interesting aspects of this series is the fact that we've got the deserter tribe. This establishes that there was a, a, a largely a black Atlantean race which I guess is known as the deserter tribe. They, they left Atlantis thousands of years ago, like a, like, the, uh, like a similar, almost like the diaspora of Jews that, that spread out after the fall of Jerusalem in, in 66 AD. You know, these Atlanteans sort of spread out around the world and the descendant of the deserter tribes now are, all of them are, have their health compromised and they're dying of brain aneurysms because of this oraculum or ernaculum or whatever this, this thing is. And Dr. Mist, along with Gallus, and maybe Black Manta will, as this series progresses, or as the mythology and as the story of Black Manta progresses, they want to collect all, they want to bring and collect all the various people around the globe who are descendants of the deserter tribe and bring them back to Atlantis with the goal, I'm assuming, of uniting them. So I think that's the goal here. And that's why we got references in, in the earlier issues to slave colonies throughout human history. Cause I think there was a connection here that Chuck Brown was trying to say that a lot of the, a lot of these slaves in these colonies were in fact members of the deserter tribe. So I think he was trying to bring in some maybe slave history with the history of Atlantis. And so I, I give him credit for that. I, I think there, there's a lot of interesting aspects and story possibilities with that. But the, the deficiencies in the art and the disjunctiveness of some of the, of, of the narrative and, and the way it was very choppy and disjointed, it, it made it sort of difficult to follow. But so I will say that there's a lot of potential here moving forward for other writers and artists to come along and frankly do a little bit better job maybe conveying the story uh, of the mythology of Black Manta. And hopefully Aquaman can do that because I, I believe it's going to be steer handled by Brandon Thomas. So hopefully that'll make for a little bit more of a uh, easier to flow, easier flowing story. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, just because this maybe didn't land with 
all the weight that they wanted it to doesn't mean that, you know, some of the ideas here won't be fleshed out uh, better. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, okay. Up next, we have Batman Catwoman number 10 coming down to the end. There's only two issues left after this one. It's written by Tom King, Clayman on art, Tameyu More on colors, Clayton Cal on letters. I know you haven't been a big fan of this so far, Rocky. What do you think of this issue? Um, well, uh, this continues to be a Catwoman comic book. <laughs> Batman is an afterthought in this comic. Um, now, uh, I'm, I'm still not going to pretend that I know exactly what's going on. And I sound like a broken record every time I, I talk about this comic. I, I will say that uh, I, I am a fan of most of what Tom King is writing. I, I'm just... But this is the one that's not on my list. So I might love his Superman, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, his uh, Human Target, his Rorschach, his Strange Adventures. I enjoyed all that. But this Batman, Catwoman, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand the story. I don't understand why Catwoman is having drinks with Joker for three issues and then kicking his ass throughout this entire, through this entire issue the next. I don't really understand it. Uh, I, I guess one of the big revelations in this issue is that the, the again we're we're going back forth in time but in the in the in the present selena is gets into a big fight with joker and the big the big revelation is that the joker is really sane he's not insane i guess that's supposed to be a big revelation i've i've i don't know i've i've never i personally have never thought i've thought of the joker as crazy but i've never seen i personally have never thought of the joker as insane and maybe it's the lawyer in me but the the joker does not meet the test of insanity by any metric he knows exactly what he's doing and he knows what's right or wrong is he just chooses to do wrong that's not insanity that's just evil so he the joker's not technically insane not that people care they might they, you can argue with me all you, all you want but for what it's worth he's not insane by any legal standard and uh although they might suggest otherwise in the world of comic books but he's not but aside from that the big revelation here is that oh my god the joker is really sane well, I'm not sure what what point of that is. And then in the future, where Selena has killed the Joker already, Helena or Helena, her daughter, is trying to arrest her to take her in. And the dialogue between Helena and her mother, the older Selena, they talk in circles all the time. And you know, I gotta say, sometimes when 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 King when Tom King does dialogue, and I understand the metaphor that the that the like he he likes to incorporate a lot of metaphor and talk in circles a little bit, and sometimes it hits with me, and sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't here. I don't understand what Selena's saying. She's trying to suggest that somehow there's a secret that that Bruce, she wanted to give a final. There, there's something that Bruce didn't understand, and there's a final gift to Bruce, and uh, and, and in the future, of course, Bruce's. Bruce Wayne has, has died because he, 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 he died from, I guess, Alzheimer's because this is sort of in conjunction with the Batman annual number two, which I loved. But that is sort of in continuity with that, this this story. But I, I, I don't understand it. And the, the visuals here are fantastic. Uh, Clay Mann and Tom, uh, Tommy, Tomu Mori, uh, really fantastic art, fantastic visuals. But the, the dialogue, it, it's, it, it, I hate to use the word, but it's pretentious. It's just pretentiousness. Uh, I don't know where the dialogue is leading me in terms of what insights I'm supposed to get out of this story, and I, I just don't understand how the how the past and the and the and the present are really linked. I have, and I, I give this challenge out there to any reviewer. I've read multiple reviews 
of every single one of these issues. I have yet to come across a review that has explained to me what the hell is going on. <laughs> I've not come across anybody. And I, I, I listen to the Weird Science DC podcast. They're confused. Uh, they've, I've, I've, I've looked at multiple reviews. There's a lot of people inclined to give this nine, nine out of 10, 10 out of 10s. <laughs> and for the life of me, I don't know what's going on. And so again, beautiful visuals. It's always an interesting read. Uh, but I'm telling you, man, I, I just, I'll just, this is one of those things where I just accept, I quietly accept the fact that I don't understand what's going on and I forgive myself and I'll go. There's lots of other Tom King titles that I'm enjoying right now. So he can't hit it out of the park with me all the time. So that's, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. For me, it's starting to come together pretty well. You know, I've talked about it a lot as we've gone through and part of the reason, you know, just the fact that we're still talking about this book with the delays and, and whatnot. Um, and, and we've talked before about, how it's coming out so far after Tom King's Batman run. And again, they did, you know, label it as black label, so it doesn't necessarily have to fit in continuity, but it lost so much momentum from being late and from the, the distance between the end of Tom King's uh, Batman run. As far as the three storylines, yes, it, it, it can be confusing. In this issue, it's not. It's clear because Catwoman has three different costumes on. She's at three different locations. She's... Uh, in two of them, she's confronting the Joker. The Joker. In the third, she's confronting her her daughter. Um, but it, it's action. It's fighting in, in all three um, with with some context for what exactly is going on. Now, will I need to go back and reread this one once the whole thing is out to really understand exactly? Yeah, I, I probably will because what is not explained, and I I can't even pretend to understand is the motivations for why the Joker's doing what he's doing in, in the first two timelines in the, the past timeline and the present timeline. Obviously he's dead in the future timeline because uh, Catwoman killed him. And we, I, n I never really understood why we, th that wasn't ever really explained why she finally took him out, but we get the answers to that question, at least in, by seeing what happens in this, in this particular issue. So, uh, yeah, for me, it's it's starting to come together. But as I've said all along, I don't know where I'm going to land on this. Uh, eventually, it, it this is not a book that, in my mind, should have come out as a as a monthly comic or bi monthly or whatever. Like, this is something that should have been you know collected and released all together. But you know, these, that that doesn't make as much money because they can release it monthly they can do variant covers and then they can release a collection and get you know they're double dipping in a way so i can understand why dc would want to do it that way but this the story the story structure just doesn't lend itself to being like rocky said to, for for it to be easily understood or understood at all uh until you read the whole story uh you know i, I mean i felt like I, I it was like issue seven or maybe issue eight before I even started to understand before I even saw had enough of this, each of the storylines to understand what's going on. Like think of a typical comic where sometimes if it's somewhat of a, a mystery or if it's told out of order, if it's not a, um, a linear story structure where, you know, a follows, B follows C, 
how many issues it takes you to kind of understand what's going on. Say, say two or three issues sometimes, depending on how complex it is. Okay, now assume that you're only getting a third of the story because remember, there's three timelines here. So it takes technically three issues of Batman Catwoman to get the equivalent of one issue worth of each storyline, right? So at the end of the third issue, you've now read one issue of each storyline. Okay, I don't get it yet. Let me let me jump three more issues. Okay, after issue six, okay, now I've read the equivalent of about two issues of each of these storylines. Mm, still not sure if I if I like it after two issues. Let me give it an, you know one more. Now we're talking issue eight or nine, right? And that for me is when it started to click, right? So there are books that I read, series that I read where it, the story structure isn't necessarily complicated, but I'm just not sure. It takes a little while it takes for the story to get moving, for us to get traction, for the writer to lay out all the groundwork and the foundation, for us to, okay, now I understand where the story's going. Yeah. Two and a half, three issues, right? So we are talking about eight or nine issues of Batman Catwoman because you got to divide it by three because we'll only get a third of each storyline per issue. I, I so, got to tell you, though, I got to tell you, though, I, I – uh, right up at issues, I was at issue seven or eight. I reread from to, from the beginning to issue seven or eight, and I was still lost. Right, and so uh, I'm just gonna. Well, no, this I, is why I, I said I, I'm just gonna say like I, I fully admit my ignorance and that and I, I just I'm not seeing this and I'm it, I I feel fool. I feel like a fool admitting that, but I mean it's straight up. I just I, I'm looking forward to reading the Wikipedia page on this when it's in about five years when it's done, <laughs> and so somebody can fi who's who finally understands this. It's like. It's like finishing final Grant Morrison's Final Crisis and going right, to, right, right to Wikipedia and saying, "Oh, so that's what happened." <laughs> I don't know. I just, it, I hope it comes through at the end. But I mean, uh, I, you know, uh, the stuff that I love for about Tom King's work can sometimes be the very things that can frustrate me if it's a narrative that I don't quite understand. That's what I'm sort of realizing about Tom King. If, when he hits with me, he hits, but when he misses, it's a pretty big miss. But. Yeah, and the other part part of this is, I mean, part of the reason there are so many delays is because Clay's Clayman's artwork is so detailed. Uh, he's just not he's just not very fast, you know. I mean, he's not even he's <laughs> he's not even normal speed. He's slow, you know. So, but but the artwork is fantastic. It's it's awesome. Yeah. Um, it's really it's good. Just, yeah, it's just too bad that you know that this sort of quality and detail and whatnot takes time. And so again, it's it's unfortunate. I I almost wish that DC had known, okay, we're, we're not even going to have Tom, like, Tom's only going to be on Batman for 85 issues and not uh, for the full hundred. And if they wanted to do this, if they wanted to let him, you know, kind of finish off his ideas on bat the Batman Catwoman relationship, they could have started this. They could have started Batman Catwoman at the same time that, uh, that Tom King's issue number one of Batman came out. Yeah. If they'd done that, they would have had like, like you said, they would have had five years to work on Batman Catwoman. And then it could have been released as soon as issue 85 came out, then the next month issue one of Batman Catwoman. And it would have been, you know, wouldn't have missed an issue. Wouldn't have missed a month. It would have been over in, the, in a year. It would have been really like Tom continuing on Batman, which was the original idea. But uh, they didn't do that obviously for many reasons. Um, and uh, unfortunately this is what we're, what we're left with. So, yeah, I I think I'm going to like this in the end. I started off not liking it. I started off kind of frustrated and confused like you were. It's starting to come together. I really enjoyed this issue. I enjoyed 
the context of of the relationship between Catwoman and Joker and the contrast between the different timelines. Because that's really what this is all about. Rocky's right. It, it has this has felt like a Catwoman book all along. Um, the way Catwoman sees Joker and Batman as the same in a lot of ways is very interesting to stop and think about, right? She's in love with one and despises the other. But yet in this issue, she's talking about how, how they're the same about how they, they, they need each other. Not in the way that Batman, Batman doesn't need Joker the same way that Batman needs Catwoman, but there is an, there is a need there. Um, and yeah, the aspect of him not, not being insane. I agree with you as well. There's some people that would say, uh, somebody who loses their parents, a billionaire who loses their parents uh, and chooses to dress up like a, a flying rodent and go out and fight crime, you know, that's insane as well. Um, <laughs> Batman's not insane, but again, neither is a joker. It's all a matter of, of perspective. So ultimately, I think that's going to be the, the thing that's going to be explored in the end when you go back and look at it. It's going to be in this context, how are the Joker and Batman similar how are they different and how do those differences cause selena to love one and despise the other um so uh yeah i I think i think there's going to be a lot to examine when this is all said and done but unfortunately god it just took forever to get there two issues to go we'll see how it all (laughs) plays out uh okay up next we have more batman because we're talking dc comics it's i am batman Empire State of Mind Part 1, which is the sixth issue. This is from writer John Ridley. Ken Lashley on art. Rex Locus on colors. Troy Petrie on letters. Um, I know that DC is pushing this pretty hard from a marketing standpoint. as sort of this great jumping on point for for the new Batman book. Uh, really kind of cool. I mean, all around New York, they're putting up artwork from, from the book. Um, hopefully, it'll get people picking up picking it up and reading it. Um, we have to leave aside the continuity that doesn't make sense with future state Batman and, um, and how he was just brand new starting out in future state Batman, which is way in the future, but now we're in present and he's just starting out as Batman. (laughs) Like forget about that. Uh, I do like the fact that he's not covering up the bottom half of his face anymore. He's clearly, and it's not because it shows that he's clearly not the, the old Batman, but it just it shows to me um, a willingness to say, hey, I'm out there and I'm trying to make a difference. You know, yeah, I'm not the other guy, but it, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm out there and I'm trying to make a difference. Uh, this idea of him working with the the mayor and the city government to make the uh, the city of New York a better place. I, I, I like that. It brings in some political aspect of the story, because even within the mayor's own. Uh, framework and structure for the city. There's, you know, people that are, are going to push back against him. We see the the chief of police meeting with um, the deputy mayor in secret saying, you know, I, I don't agree with what this guy's doing, but, I, you know, he's the mayor and I have to follow his orders. But, I, I mean, at the end of the day, he's going to be undermining the mayor most likely. So there's there's a lot to like here with, uh, with Jace being set up in, in New York, I said it when we first got the reveal last issue that I, I thought that was, it was good to take him out of Gotham. Like if you want to establish Jace Fox as his, as his own version of Batman, 
yeah, take him out of Gotham, take him out of the shadow of, of Bruce Wayne. I still don't necessarily think he should be called Batman. I mean, if, again, it just feels super derivative, right? If Bruce Wayne is still wearing the cowl, then call Jace Fox something else or take Bruce Wayne out of the cowl and Jace Fox is Batman. You can still have him in New York, whatever. Um, but I'm not a big fan of having two heroes with the same name running around. Um, like as much as I love Miles Morales and I love Miles Morales, I think he should have a different name than, than Spider-Man or call him Spider-Man and have Peter Parker retire or, or take him out of the costume for a while at least. Um, but it, it's a minor nitpick. Uh, overall, I enjoyed the issue. The art, uh, man, Ken Lashley for me, he, he maybe is the artist who's, I, I find myself loving it sometimes and really disliking it sometimes. Like I've seen his art be like I, where I couldn't stand it. I'm like, Oh my God, what what are you doing? Uh, and I don't know what, I don't know what the difference is. I don't know why he's so inconsistent. Is it just a matter of how much time he spends on it? How much time he has to work on it? Where, you know, when he has a lot of lead up time, his, his art super detailed and great transitions, great line work. And then when he's rushed, not so much. I don't know. This falls somewhere in the middle. It's not the best I've seen his artwork look. It's not the worst. Um, but yeah, it, when I heard Ken Lashley was on it, I'm like, oh, he, he's probably had a lot of lead up time. This art's going to be fantastic. Uh, but it wasn't. Um, he is a good storyteller for the most part. So I, I don't mind that aspect of it, but I just thought that the, the rendering and the detail it was just, it, it felt a little sloppy. Um, but overall, I, I think this is a strong, uh, this is a strong issue and DC did what they set out to do in terms of making this a good jumping on point an easy jumping on point. Like anybody can just pick this up and hit the ground running. You don't need to go back and read anything that happened before with the Jace Fox version of Batman. And you might be better off not going back and reading because if you go back and you're like, oh, I want to understand the timeline. Well, the timeline they have doesn't make sense. So just start from here and just read it uh, and enjoy it for, for what it is. Um, also, this had a lot less of the whole Fox family drama that I've not enjoyed uh, th that we've had in I Am Batman to, to this point. There's still a little bit of family stuff. Um and it, it probably will continue, but it's not, it doesn't feel so, so forced like it had uh, in the previous issues. So overall, I felt this was, was pretty strong. What'd you think, Rocky? Yeah, I agree. I uh, actually, this, this is by far the best Jace Fox Batman issue that's come out yet. This was, they should have started with this and this, I like this way better. I, I would have, I, I just, I, I liked every aspect of this. This was easy to read. It was easy to follow. You don't read to need, you don't really don't need to know much going into this. This is everything you need to know is here. He's, he's Jace Fox. He was in Gotham and now he's, he's in New York city now. And I love how right away John Ridley is in this one issue. He's established how New York city is different. This is a different Batman. And this is a different, uh, this is a different relationship that Batman has with the, with the, uh, New York, uh, police department. 
uh, a different relationship with the mayor. He's going to have, you can tell he's going to have probably a little bit of a high conflict relationship with the detectives that might make up the task force. But the fact that Mayor Villanova of New York City has basically, he doesn't, he even calls it the Gotham model. You know, the Gotham model doesn't, is not going to work for New York City. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to just have, you know, have a commissioner who's going to work in secret and throw a bat say, you know, necessarily, and necessarily have a bat signal. Although they might have a bat signal, but they're going to work with this Batman. And why not work with him? Why not have him on a task force? He's Batman, for God's sakes. I mean, so it's a little bit more of a realistic approach because if you have someone who's that good at dealing with the criminal element, why not work with them? And plus, so I think there's a there's there's a little bit more of a realistic approach even to the politics. Clearly, there's people that want to take advantage of Batman, maybe want to are waiting for him to fail and what have you. But it, it makes sense. It also makes sense, of course, that he's taken off the mask. This is a black Batman. So, and he's, he's not ashamed of who he is. Of course, he's going to just, he's, you know, he's Batman. He's going to do what he's going to do. I, I love, I, uh, unlike you, you and I have uh, disagreed on, uh, I've actually enjoyed the, some of the drama in the Fox family. Uh, Jace, his sister, Tiffany, his mother, uh, his, uh, and uh, are there for his uh, sister, Tammy, who's recovering from, uh, who's undergoing physical therapy. In fact, that's one of the reasons, that's wh why they all moved to New York City was for, t the, Tammy could get some treatment there for physical therapy. I believe Tammy was one of the, was injured during, during A-Day and during the, 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 the nonsense that flowed out of A-Day, she was shot and she's trying to overcome some paralysis. And so she's, she's doing her, her best to overcome that. Uh, I like the fact that they detect, Detective Chubb and her partner, uh, her part, her detective Whitaker, they're both from Gotham. And of course she's, she basically, she doesn't like Jace. Uh, she, she doesn't like uh, Batman because he, she feels that he's one of the reasons why, you know, that she had to, she got basically let go from Gotham. And now she's in New York city and she's actually been asked to lead the task force because she has experience dealing with Batman. So right away we have an antagonistic relationship. There might even be, he might, she might even be a de facto love interest, which is always good to have a little bit of tension. Will they or won't they? So John Ridley has set all this up in one, in one issue and he's done more in this issue. I like this one issue better than all the other ones combined straight up, straight up. I just like it that much better I feel that Jace Fox can finally be on his own here, away from Gotham. He can establish his own set of relationships his and his own rogues gallery, which is hinted at at the end because as Detective Chubb says, it's like they come across the end. There, there's a crime scene where this Devlin Rebel has been tortured and killed and all the uh, all the... All the bad stuff that Batman attracts, it's coming to New York City and Detective Chubb is a cynic, cynic. Just like Batman, Bruce Wayne Batman tends to attract the worst element in Gotham. You know, is it is it a coincidence that Jace, Jace Fox Batman ends up in New York City and, and then suddenly we're going to see all these horrible rogues gallery end up in New York City? So... Uh, again, there, there's some things there that uh, whether whether you're Jace Fox Batman or Bruce Wayne Batman, you're going to attract an insane degree of criminal element. That's what's happened here. But I like the thing that John Ridley, I think he's going somewhere. He's intentionally trying to go in a different direction and it shows. And I think this this is a, a really good, uh, this is a good issue. And we would be lax if we didn't say that this is Black History Month. And uh, if you want to show some support for Black History, that there's there's various DC covers this week. Uh, which will support uh, Black History Month, and there is a there is a nice Black History uh, Month cover here, uh, which shows Jace Fox and his and and his father Lucius, uh, which is quite quite good. So, yeah, I yeah, enjoyed it. Strong, 
strong issue for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. Up to the next book, it's Joker number 12. This is from writer James Tynan, Giuseppe Camoncoli on pencils, Cam Smith does inks, Arif Prianto and Romulo Fajardo Jr. on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, we are coming down to the end of this. Uh, this story is starting to come together uh, as well. And uh, it's, we, have, we haven't had it explained to us exactly what's been going on all along, but uh, we are told by James Gordon that he... He has figured it out, and we do get a big reveal in this one of who was behind A-Day. Uh, yeah, and I know this was uh, a big shock for you, Rocky. Didn't Or no, did you say you had figured it out beforehand? Uh, I, well, I had a theory, but I was wrong. I, um, uh, I was wrong. Uh, I thought it was the Joker all along. Here's here's where this 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 is what's going to be problematic for some people, and this might wrinkle some feathers. But coming out of Ada, coming out of Fear State, the question that people should be asking themselves is, who caused Ada? Who ca- caused Arkham Asylum Day? Who 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 destroyed Arkham Asylum? Everybody assumed it was the Joker, but then it wasn't. And then and then I assumed, or I was told that well, I guess if we put the pieces together on Fear State. And I, I, I've spoken with different guys at the Weird Science DC podcast and the, and the, the chat there. Uh, it's that, well, no, it was Scarecrow. It was Scarecrow and Simon Saint that conspired to create A-Day. And that, that helped ferment fear. And the magistrate program resulted in that. And the peacekeeper force, all that flowed from A-Day. So Scarecrow and Simon Saint orchestrated A-Day. Or so we were led to believe. Out of that, and that's what led to the whole fear state thing. Well, the big revelation here with Joker is, and my theory was, was that the Joker, uh, you know, he escaped A-Day, and then this Billy Samson character, that, that, that Billy Samson was, was one of the people that was killed during A-Day. And the Samson crime family, they blame the Joker for A-Day. And so that's why Samson, the Samson family, in this 12 issue so far, they're, they're looking to find and kill the Joker. And in fact, the Joker is currently held captive on the on the Samson family farm, and they want to the head of the Samson family. They want to torture and kill and eat, literally eat the Joker for revenge for killing Billy Samson. So I thought my theory was that I bet you Billy Samson is still alive, uh, and he was he's working with the Joker, and Billy Samson's going to show up and wipe out the family and take over the empire, and and because the 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 Samson family way back in the day, you know, they, they blamed all these killings that had taken place on Billy Samson. And, and he took the fall uh, because they discovered oil on the land and the, the Samson empire grew, but they needed a fall guy. And so Billy Samson was the member of the Samson family that took the fall for all these murders that had gone on uh, because they were killing and eating young girls. In any event, <laughs> all that is apparently is not the case. Uh, this issue starts off, everything's coming to a head. Everybody knows where the Joker is. The Joker is being held captive by the Samson family on the farm. Vengeance, daughter of Bane, is, it's, the issue starts off with her jumping out of an airplane above, somewhere above uh, Dallas, uh, tech, the state of Texas, because the Samson family is somewhere in Texas, and she is he- clearly headed toward the Samson farm. Meanwhile, uh, while Vengeance's, Vengeance, daughter of Bane, is doing that, Barbara Gordon is on a plane with Cressida and the intention there is that they're following, she's following her, her father, uh, James or her father, Gordon, James, Jim Gordon. 
And Jim Gordon is on his way ostensibly to meet uh, Christina as well. With <laughs> all, all with the goal here, of course, Jim Gordon has, he, he's apparently figured this all out. And, uh, and he's got Harvey Bullock with him. And so he's, I, I believe, going to, he's also flying to the, 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 the Samson, uh, in my, I believe he's flying out to the, the Samson farm uh, to sort of piece it all together. But he gets, uh, he gets contacted by uh, Cressida because what happens is, is that, uh, uh, is, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to get to the page of people listening. Uh, Jim Gordon talks to Cressida and uh, Cressida is uh, working for the Court of Owls. So we know, we know that Christina's working for the Court of Owls. It was the Court of Owls that hired Jim Gordon to, to find the Joker and kill the Joker. Now, what Jim Gordon has, has put together and what is revealed here is that the Court of Owls is working with none other than Bane. Bane is still alive. And Bane, Bane is still alive. And that's a huge revelation because we thought Bane was killed on A-Day. But... Jim Gordon has apparently figured out somehow that Bane was the one who's responsible for A-Day. So the big mastermind behind A-Day was Bane. But Bane died in A-Day and the Joker got blamed for it. And what's, what's interesting about this is Gordon figures this all out. And so now it ends with Jim making a deal with Bane saying, look, Leave my leave my daughter Barbara Gordon out of this. Let her fly. Let her and Julia Pennyworth. I want them to be flown back safely to Gotham. I'll go with you, Bane, and uh, Cressida, and we can go to the to the Samson to go presumably to the Samson family farm, and where uh, I'm, I imagine shit's going to hit the fan. So we're going to probably this is I'm assuming this is going to end up with a big battle. Because I believe this ends at issue 14. This is issue 12. We're going to end up with a big battle with, with Vengeance, Jim Gordon, and Bane, and Cressida, and Talon, and maybe some Court of Owls end up at the Samson family farm, and shit's going to hit the fan, and I don't know what the hell's going to happen, but that's where we're headed, and all because of the Joker. So everyone is headed toward the Samson farm because of the Joker, and this ends with clearly Joker being held in, in, in a cage, where it's clear that you know uh, a chef is sharpening a knife because they're gonna cut the Joker up and eat him, and so <laughs> I'm still trying to work through exactly how these pieces weave into this tale of twelve issues so far. You and I have talked about how this is really more of a Jim Gordon story than a Joker story, but all the machinations and all the movements of all the characters are all motivated to take out the Joker. They're all motivated and impacted by what the Joker has done and what the Joker is doing. And the irony here is that not only has this felt in many ways more like a Jim Gordon story, but it ends up that the mastermind behind everything might very well be Bane, who isn't, who also is not the Joker. So, and yet somehow I have to wonder, is maybe the Joker the mastermind behind the mastermind here? I don't know. But as as frustrated as I am, I I like this. I like this. I love the mystery of this. And I've been enjoying this. But I can understand some people being very frustrated because there's a lot of people that just assumed we went through all that fear state. And I think so many people assumed that it was that it was Scarecrow and Simon Saint that orchestrated 80. Uh, 
uh, and it makes sense that they did. If you read Fear State, they have motive, opportunity. They get they they had everything to gain, and yet now we find out that it was Bane. I got to tell you, this is really rocking the boat, and I'm wondering how frustrating it's going to be for a lot of people because this really upsets the storyline of Fear State, and I can see a lot of people being pissed off. Personally, I think it's kind of cool, <laughs> but I can understand it ruffling some feathers. Uh, what do you think of it? Yeah, I I mean here's the thing about Bane and, and it, it sort of started with Tom King. Um, and again, I, I don't really have an opinion on it. I, I tend to not like it. Like if, if I had to choose a side, but really Bane, when he first showed up yet, yeah, he had a, he had like a cunning to him. You know, he, it wasn't like he was just dumb muscle, but he wasn't some brilliant mastermind criminal that could, you know, think 20 moves ahead or, or what have you. That didn't really happen until Tom King's run where, you know, Bane was the bad guy, like for all 85 issues. Uh, and he, and he set everything up and he, he was outsmarting Batman. Even that's never been really Bane's thing. Joker sometimes definitely with the Riddler. Those are the kind of the, the bat villains you expect to do that. Not with Bane, you know, he's, he's such a physical specimen. You sort of lean into that side Again, he's not dumb. He's not stupid, um, but it's more this this um, this aspect of being cunning uh, and in the moment, uh, being manipulative, that sort of thing. Um, so to have him be the bad guy here, it, it makes sense in terms of of the most recent version of Bane that we had from Tom King. But yeah, I, I, I like you said, I can see some people being like, "Well, no, wait, it, it, it was Simon Saint and Scarecrow." Because you're right; that's what makes the most sense. I never assumed it was. I was 100% convinced that A-Day wasn't the Joker just because it didn't make any sense for the Joker to, to have done it. Uh, I mean, it doesn't mean DC editorial couldn't have said, yes, make it be the Joker at the end of the day. But I didn't make any assumptions that it was uh, that it was um, Scarecrow and Simon Saint, although that would have made sense to me. I There was even a part of me that thought it might go completely around the other way. And it might, might have been the Samson family itself that was responsible. Maybe they wanted to get rid of Billy for some reason. Maybe they were tired of, uh, of, you know, him as kind of like a symbol of weakness or, uh, as a symbol of, you know, the family having done something wrong, uh, like a kind of a stain on the, on the family legacy and finally decided they wanted to get rid of him. I never assumed, um, well, I knew it wasn't the Joker. At least I felt that was my opinion. There's no way it's the Joker. Didn't assume it was Simon Saint and Scarecrow. I, I don't know why people would be frustrated. Yes, that makes the most sense, but nobody's ever said it. It wasn't ever really hinted at other than it was kind of the obvious choice. I think, you know, typically you try to stay away from the obvious choice, and it's clear that a lot of what this Joker series was from Tynan was very much of a, you know, a mystery. Uh, he's out there as a detective trying to solve this case. And if it turned out that it was Scarecrow and, and Magistrate, there's, that's not really a mystery. There's nothing to, to solve. And so that was kind of the reason why I was like, nah, I don't think it was them. Am I surprised it was Bane? Yeah. I mean, we were told Bane was dead, died in A-Day. Of course, nobody believes that. I don't believe anybody died at A-Day in terms of any of the actual villains that are you know named because somebody's going to want to use them down you know, down the line and we'll find out, Oh, they, they survived a day. The people that didn't survive a day were like 
the janitorial staff and the nurses and the guards, you know, the unnamed people, the, the, the red shirts, if you will. Um, so that aspect of it, I'm kind of like, whatever. Uh, I mean, nice to see Bane back and just in terms of, okay, he's a classic Batman villain. This isn't something that I expected. And so uh, Tynan can do a, a lot of fun things here. Like why, like what, what is Bane's connection? Why did Bane do it? What's his connection to the Samson family? I guess we'll find all that stuff out. So yeah, this continues to be really, really good. Uh, it Having Bane involved makes Vengeance's appearance in the series more important and more interesting. So I'm very curious to see how that all plays out. Uh, the artwork by Cam and Coley is, is very, very good. Um, it's interesting that he tries to keep uh, somewhat of the uh, the aesthetic that uh, that Guillaume March had on, on the book. Um, it, he doesn't go to the length that Guillaume March does, but even, even on his cover, you see that one of the lenses of Jim Gordon's uh, glasses is, is this reflection of the Joker. And that, that's something that that's your pet uh, peeve, isn't it? <laughs> something that March did a lot, right? Where just one glass would be white or, or opaque or a reflection. Yeah, it bugged me. Uh, I didn't understand why he was doing that. Uh, I didn't mind it once in a while, but he, he would do it like, you know, a couple times every issue. Um, but this this art by Cam and Coley does seem to be in the same vein. So I give props to, uh, to Cam and Coley for at least trying to keep the aesthetic close to what March did um, so that it'll, it won't be too uh, jarring in the, in the trade. Uh, as far as the backup, the punchline backup, we're up to chapter 12 from writer Sam Johns, James Tynan, art by Bellin Ortega, colors by Alex Gamares, and letters by Becca Carey. We're getting down to the trial of punchline finally. This uh, backup feels like it's just been going on forever. Um, it, it's at the point now where I really don't even care what happened. I don't, yeah. I don't really care. Like, yeah. is this backup keeping punchline like on people's minds? Because she was, she was a big deal for a while there. And now it seems like most DC readers have, have kind of forgotten her. Um, kind of the, the new toy, you know, the shine has worn off. So, um, regardless of whether she's found guilty or not, we, you know, she's a comic book villain. She's going to be out there causing mayhem. She's not going to stay in prison or, or whatever. So yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm curious enough that I'll keep reading it. You know, I've, I've read 12, 12 issues of it so far. So I'm kind of committed at this point, but I don't think it's going to be anything that's really going to be memorable. Um, so you have any thoughts about the backup? Uh, yeah. The, the huge mistake that they made with the punchline backup is, is that punchline isn't, she's not really a central part of the story. She, she always feels like an afterthought. Now the irony is, is that the Joker in the, in the Joker main story, it's, it's really a Jim Gordon story, but we, all of us know the Joker. Joker's a very familiar character. We know that the Joker, the Joker's always present in some way behind the motivations of the characters. We see it, and 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 we and and we are getting we are getting scenes with the Joker in the main storyline. It's just mostly Jim Gordon. But with the punchline backup, we don't know punchline. The entire purpose of the punchline backup should have been to get us to know punchline because we don't actually know about her. The irony is, we saw more of punchline. And we learn more about Punchline during Joker War than we have 
in this backup. It, it, well, I, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but really, what do we really know about Punchline? She's actually, see, she's kind of boring. And and this is more of a showcasing Bluebird and Leslie Tompkins and, and, and these Aiden characters and these Encilia characters that I just don't care about any of them. And I, I'm not interested in the story, so the story's not very good. It's all centered around a trial. And I just... This is, this is a, I just don't like the story. This is a very, very uninteresting story. I'm not interested in punchline at all. I mean, my God, think about this. This is punchline. I mean, everybody was talking about punchline at one point. This could potentially be the next Harley Quinn. And we're getting, think of how boring this story is. I mean, has punchline done anything remotely impressive in this backup at all? Has she displayed any degree of intelligence uh, connivance or, or genius or manipulations or something that has that ri- puts her on a status of being a uh, worthy of being the, the the Joker sidekick or Joker's partner if you want to be more favorable and describe it in a more favorable light. No, it's it's not. And you know this ending here. You know to be blunt, I I don't necessarily want Punchline to lose at the end. I mean, I want her to kind of maybe get up. I want her to actually maybe be found not guilty. Impress me with her criminal genius. Have her found not guilty. I don't. I don't want this. I don't actually want the good guys to win here. It's called the Joker. The comic book's called the Joker. This is a punchline backup. I don't need punchline to go to jail or or to lose in the trial. And this is all centered around Bluebird. I didn't read read this for a Bluebird story. She's no. She's no Jim Gordon. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I know Jim Gordon. I've heard a lot of Jim Gordon and Bluebird. You're no Jim Gordon. But in any event, that's my rant on that. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, okay, maybe more rants to come. Uh, Justice League 72, written by Brian Michael Bendis, art by Simon Kredansky, Emmanuel Lupacchino, and Wade Von Grobinger, colors by Kredansky and Hi-Fi, letters by Josh Reed. Uh, so no more Justice League backup, uh, Justice League dark backup, I should say. And when we talked about the last issue, we talked about Justice League 71, and the backup. I specifically said, what a great time to jump on. It's kind of a recap of, of who the Justice League Dark are and, and uh, you know, the members and where they are and, and their fight against Merlin and what have you. Um, yeah, great, great sort of catch-up issue. You kind of didn't like that it was a catch-up. It felt a little wasted, you know, ready for the story <laughs> to move along a little faster because, again, it's a backup. You're only getting eight pages. It takes forever to, to move the narrative forward. Uh, but a lot of times we were saying it, it felt like a bigger chunk of story, more forward momentum than in the regular Justice League uh, feature. Um, and we were impressed with that Ram V was able to do that in only eight pages. But it, it, but it was tough, right? Like, we, Ram, we really want Justice League Dark to have its own title. Well, <laughs> come to find out, that recap, I guess, was sort of, a, okay, here's where we are, and now we're leaving them because the backup is over and there is no more Justice League Dark backup. Um I hope that means we're going to get a Justice League Dark series at some point to continue the because the fight against Merlin is certainly not over. Uh, it, it, in some ways, you could think of it as barely having begun. Um, so all that being said, one thing that is good about it is that the Justice League Dark is going to be in the regular in the regular book. Um, the title of the, the new story arc here is is Leagues of Chaos. And if you look at the cover, it, it has members of Justice League Dark along with members of uh, 
of the regular Justice League team. So, uh, and and this issue starts off with some really creepy art from Simon Kradansky, although I don't particularly like the way that he draws uh, Zatanna. She kind of looks like Liza Minnelli to me, which is <laughs> not anybody that Zatanna should ever look like in my opinion. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's creeping me out a little bit. Uh, but that being said, um, I do like where this story is going. I, this might be my favorite issue of, of Justice League that Brian Michael Bendis has, has written. We get the introduction of a formerly unknown uh, Lord of Chaos who is so powerful and so chaotic in a lot of ways that the other Lords of uh, Chaos and the Lords of Order actually teamed up to like erase her from history, erase her from everybody's memory, try to, in every way they could, erase her from existence. Um, it's not clear exactly how she was able to return at this time, but what the other aspect of this that's really interesting is just how powerful she already was maybe the most powerful of all the Lords of Chaos. She comes into our world at this point in our history, and she's even more powerful than she's ever been because there's more chaos in the world than there has ever been before. Uh, and I, I like that. I like that idea from Bendis that he's saying that, yeah, there's so much um, divisiveness and so much chaos and so, so many things that are completely up in the air that this, uh, this powerful Lord of Chaos that is sort of an enemy of, of the other Lords of Chaos and an enemy of order and basically an enemy of everybody is this super powerful, super powerful being. Now, you could argue that Bendis oftentimes will do this when he comes up with a new character. He makes them the most important, you know, the most powerful. I think Rogel's are, right? And then whether or not anybody actually follows up with it or has them show back up, um, you know, it, it can be it can be problematic. But uh, I did enjoy this issue. I, I, I like a lot of the concepts. Um, is it a perfect issue? No. Is there maybe a little too much dialogue? Yes. Uh, because again, Bennis does that thing where when people are on the, the panel, that he feels like they have to say something. And we've got even more characters now that you've, we've brought the Justice League Dark characters in with the, uh, the regular league. But overall, uh, I did enjoy this. I, I really also enjoyed Now, usually it's something I don't like, right? When I say there's multiple artists in different styles in the same book and I don't like it. it. It's jarring and it can pull me out of the story. This may, might be the exception here because the Justice League dark focus pages tend to be drawn or, or they are drawn by Simon Kradansky and they're creepy. Like Simon Kradansky uh, for me, like he's the perfect artist to draw like horror and really creepy stuff. Like I loved his work on black eyed kids for aftershock that he did. That was written by Joe Pruitt. Because uh, it's so moody and it's it's got so much ambiance um, and it just sets that creepy tone so so well and it's it's especially true because he does his own colors um, so you get it, it evokes exactly the tone and the feel that he wants so I love that and it, and the other thing that it does is it, sh it it really showcases the difference between Justice League Dark and what they do what their role in, in the DC universe is versus the very traditionally superheroic pages uh, that are brightly colored that show the regular league. And again, the Justice League Dark does show up in some of those pages as well. But when you're talking about, okay, here's here's Naboo, 
who's um, who's visiting uh, Khalid, the new Doctor Fate, and visiting with uh, with Etrigan, the demon. Right, like those pages are moody and the the colors are muted and it's it's creepy. Uh, but then when those same characters show up in the regular pages, yeah, it's brightly colored. It's super heroic. It's uh, more traditional DC house style that that Emmanuel Emmanuel Lupacino has. So I thought that art-wise, it really worked uh, very, very well. So I, I, we know that uh, Brian Michael Bendis is leaving Justice League. I don't know. I, have, I haven't read the solicits for his last issue. I don't know if this Leagues of Chaos is his last story arc, but I, I sort of hope it is because I have, I have some hope that he can end on a high note because I think the, the concepts here and the execution for the first issue anyway were, were really, really good. So uh, what did you think, Rocky? I, uh, uh, everything that you, you correctly predicted, all of my criticisms, uh, you, you nailed it. I mean, it, this does feel very, very quickly forced. Uh, Bendis is not going to be on the title long. He's got to establish the narrative. So right away, we got a brand new character we've never heard of before. Xanadoth, she appears on this scene. She's like a grown-up Naomi, except with an attitude. And, and of course, she has the exact same, uh, ver- uh, exact same verbiage. Sounds like everyone. Everyone sounds the same. Uh, in fact, she she's nice enough to tell Black Adam uh, exactly what her master plan is. I mean, this is this is this could fit right into a 1968 Spider-Man cartoon. This is like this is like supervillain tropey, uh, you know, straightforward 101. And and is it is it kind of sad and pathetic that this is the probably the best Bendis Justice League comic that's come to date? Uh, I think I think it is, but but I will say this: this I enjoyed this more than I agree with you. I agree this is his, Bendis's best work on on Justice League so far. We finally get a new character that is actually kind of interesting. Xanadoth is an interesting character. She's a Lord of Chaos, like I said, it's interesting. Before she arrives, uh, Doctor Fate, Zatanna, Black Adam, Madam, Madam Xanadu, they all have visions of this Lord of Chaos, Xanadoth coming and 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 and. And they have they have visions of, of Black Adam being corrupted, and so they're concerned about Black Adam. And this issue ends with Black Adam being possessed by Xanadoth. Xanadoth does exactly what she says she's going to do. She gives uh, she's not sure how Black Adam's going to react, so she asks him and says, "Look, I, rather than me doing this by force, I heard Black Adam that maybe you're you're kind of a jerk and a and a villain anyway. So, <laughs> do you mind if would you voluntarily just let me?" Could, could you volunteer to be my, you know, be my host and I will take over your body? And of course, he, Black Adam tells her where to go. And uh, uh, yeah, so that, that that's interesting. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's uh, like I, I, I like the, I find that there's an interesting artistic design uh, with uh, Madame Zanadoth. I, I sort of like her. The tr- her true form, it looks kind of cool. She's got sort of like a, her true form. She's the the form that she takes is of a is of a black female human, and yet her true demon form, uh, Lord of Chaos form, it looks more, I guess maybe gender neutral, a little bit more male. You know, she had a fiery head with a Doctor Fate symbol and and a and a crazy sort of you know sort of staff as a as a weapon but but i like the artistic design here and i i think the colors by uh uh wade devon ground grab badger on the colors i mean they, they really pop off the page here the action scenes are are pretty pretty damn good it's entertaining uh 
And uh, I do think that, you know, you couldn't get to, you couldn't get more divergent artistic styles than Lappuccino <laughs> and uh, Krudansky. And, but yet it works here. And, and you, you nailed it when you said it, it really nails the, the differences between Justice League Dark and the, 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 the mainstream Justice League team. And there is something about this that, that works. And that's, it, it, it's a little bit frustrating that I, I, I wish, as much as I we're enjoying this, this is actually this is this is not decompressed. We jump right into the action. We get a you know we get like you know basically our, our, the twenty two pages that we're getting, it it's entertaining. I wish we'd have gotten more of this type of Justice League combination early on, and uh, I guess better late than never. But well, I'm you know overall I'm 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 happy with this, and I'm I'm actually uh, I'm looking forward to this. And in fact, we're also going to be reviewing this week the Justice League annual. Uh, also written by Bendis, and I even found that to be uh, not not bad as well. Like again, ben, better than Bendis's usual Justice League <laughs> scripts. So mm. yeah, I, I give it. Uh, it's not bad. I enjoyed it. Yeah, we should should say Hi-Fi does the colors on Lupacino's art. Von Grabager does the inks. Thank uh, you for the correction. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Emanuela doesn't doesn't ink herself. So, uh, all right. Let's move on to Pennyworth number seven. This is the final issue of this uh, storyline. I'm sad that Alfred's, we're not going to have Alfred in a comic, a monthly comic anymore, at least until DC wises up and brings him back. Can't happen soon enough. Uh, But anyway, written by Scott Brian Wilson. Juan Gideon is the artist. John Rausch on colors. DC Hopkins on letters. Um, I I really liked this. You know, it, it very much was in the vein of Pennyworth which was originally a show on Epics, and now it's uh, the third season that it got renewed for. It's going to be on HBO Max, uh, really leaning into the uh, the early years of uh, Alfred Pennyworth when he was uh, a spy, basically. I think sort of James Bond. Uh, we had plenty of flashbacks throughout the series. Now this, this final issue takes place all in the present day, and just as I predicted <laughs> last time, which seemed very obvious to me, this girl who uh, was Alfred's girlfriend back in the day and has taken various chemicals and treatments or whatever that's kept her from aging. Shirley is her name. Um, She was saying all along, I'm not working with my father. I'm not one of the bad guys. I'm actually a double agent um, or a double, double agent. However, it, you know, she's working for MI6, but was really working for her father, but actually is really working for MI6 is what she was trying to, to convince Alfred last issue and hey I, we need the information that these bioweapons gave you uh because you know we have to stop my father and then of course when alfred to his credit well you know i'm not really sure i can trust you and then of course she shows her true colors she's not actually one of the good guys she's a bad guy truly and you know again just kind of predictable but it didn't make it any less enjoyable because you kind of saw it coming and so you didn't necessarily mind it and alfred didn't fall for it as much as he was sort of nostalgic for, um, for her and, and for times past and, and whatnot. So in the end, it all kind of works out well for Alfred. He does manage to save the day um, through his... And what's great is the way he manages to save the day, it's through his integrity because of who he is and the fact that he, res- he respects others so much that it, it allows him to stay true to who he is and in that way it reminds us of of why he needs to be in the batman comics in my opinion um so I, yeah i thought this was great i thought the artwork was really good it all 
came out in the end, as you sort of expected. This is a great series that you could give to somebody who's a fan of the show to kind of introduce them to comics. You know, it doesn't tie into any continuity where you, you need to read anything else. This really does stand on its own. Um, the only nitpick I had was at the end, and again, this is sort of throughout, but certainly at the end, Alfred sort of, like he knew, he, he when you could tell that he knew that the squirrel Shirley was was not actually, you know, on the side of angels. And that's why he was so reluctant to give up the information that he had. Uh, and then, you know, eventually she shows her true colors. So you could kind of forgive him before when he would, he was treating Shirley like better than you would treat the average villain, you know, but at the end, after everything is out in the open and everything has been resolved and even her father has been defeated. Uh, he's, he says, Alfred says to her, yeah, you, uh, I'll try to put in a good word, but, uh, and see if I can get you a comfortable cell because you're going to be in it for a long time. And then she says, uh, well, I do have, you know, a story to tell you and I've got, you know, refreshments back in my quarters. We should go hang out there and I'll, I'll tell you all about it. And he says, okay, let me go, you know, grab a shave and clean it up first. It's like, wait, what? She's still the bad guy. You're going to let her go back to her nice comfy. Court. No, she, Put her in handcuffs, tie her up, whatever you got to do. She is the bad guy. And Alfred, you know, he still is kind of playing that game where he, he seems like, well, I know you messed up and you did terrible things, but, you know, you're not all that bad. Man, she kidnapped you. You could have been killed. Like, he he, he doesn't treat her the way that I would expect Alfred to treat Because remember all that stuff I was talking about before about integrity? Yeah. This kind of flies against it a little bit, right? Like, he should want nothing to do with her. Uh, I understand that he had feelings for her, but, you know, it, he talks about it because he narrates this in a lot of ways. He talks about, you know, having left that behind because she's somebody that he couldn't trust. So, I don't know. I thought that line right at the end kind of – it kind of pulled me out of the story to, because I was like, wait, what? No, man. Like, you, you want her to pay. You know, justice needs to be served or whatever. You're not going to go hang out with her and reminisce about old times. So, but again, it's a minor nitpick. I thought overall the story was was really fun. And uh, yeah, I hope we get Alfred back soon. Yeah, uh, I thought it was. I thought it was convenient. How I thought it was a little bit crazy. How he, you know, he memorized the phrase that the dull ear of a drowsy man. And what back in the day when he was younger, and he confronted the, those two men that were experimented upon. They're almost like Terminator-like, you know, experiments. You know that they, you know, he, they gave him a formula that not only did Alfred remember the formula from years before from the 30 years before but he also used the formula and he created the antidote or the cure that would bring that that would make these these two super soldiers sane again and he's always been carrying around these syringes just in case he ran into them and the whole thing seemed kind of convenient to me and then again and then the betrayal and, and the, the double betrayal and the espionage i mean it's there's definitely an espionage feel to this that's the good thing about pennyworth here this is definitely true to the the tv show and uh, that on the TV show, Pennyworth is more of a ladies' man. I, so I kind of like that because you always think of Pennyworth. When you think of Alfred Pennyworth, you think of a, a stuffed up butler a little bit, you know, with the nose in the air a little bit and a little bit too stuffy and, and always with the dry humor. Well, he's actually – the penny penny. good thing about Pennyworth is that Alfred is actually – he's a good-looking guy. When he's younger, he's a good-looking guy. And even the older Pennyworth here, uh, as we go back and forth to the present and the past – Alfred is a good-looking guy. He might he might be balding in, in later on in his life, but he's still a good-looking guy. In fact, uh, the the uh, 
the the, the girl, uh, the the antagonist here, even makes reference to his good looks, and there's there's tension here. And again, for fans of Pennyworth, and even if you're not a fan, this 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 is uh, good. I agree with you that the uh, the ending felt a little bit too abrupt, and it felt a little bit out of sync with the fact that she was she's a villain here, and I the fact that they they're walking out as if they're allies. That doesn't quite make sense given the story that led up to that final page. It was almost as if the writer here, Wilson, was really trying to, he ran out of room because it feels like there should be another page or two of of an epilogue, but we're deprived of that. But all in all, it's still an enjoyable read. Yeah, I agree with you on the con- the stuff being sort of convenient, but that's what I was saying about it being sort of predictable. Like you knew it was all going to come out in the end, but yeah, I mean, I did did agree with like, wait, he carried these two syringes of this antidote around in his sock for decades. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Kind of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Oh, all right. I'll buy it. Uh, okay. Up next, we have uh, Detective Comics number 1052, The Tower Part 6, from writer Mariko Tamaki, Max Rainers on the art, Luis Guerrero on colors, Ariana Mayer on letters. Uh you know, this this has been a great story so far, although I, I have heard some people online complaining about the weekly aspect of it and the fact it's so long. And I get it, you know, this book is four ninety nine and you know, for three months you're you're buying, you're paying five bucks a week to get your Batman story. So uh I get it, but uh, I've been enjoying it. What what do you think of this issue, Rocky? Uh yeah, I, I continue to enjoy this. Uh, this is, you know, again, uh, I, it does. It has led to some mixed feelings on, on online. Uh, I think a lot of people are either you're either you kind of like the fact that Psycho Pirate is part of this story, or you don't. It might seem a little bit forced or tropey, uh, but I kind of enjoy it. Uh, Marika Tamaki recently did an interview where she said that actually she got the idea to use psycho pirate from her editors uh, from her editor on this story. And which is kind of interesting because despite the fact that maybe initially it wasn't uh, Marika Tamaki's idea, I think she's used, I think she's used a uh, psycho pirate rather well. Uh, the storyline here picks up. Uh, it, it's, we already know that psycho pirate has c- continued to psycho pirate continue to sort of keeps himself wired on drugs and high, high caffeine <laughs> Coke and drinks and what have you. And uh, and the, the problem is that whenever, every now and then the psycho pirate, you know, he'll pass out from all the drug use and then the, the inmates go crazy. Uh, and then he's got to wake up. Dr. Ware's got to- Tobias Ware's got to wake him up. And then he, he puts all the, the, he puts all the patients to sleep again. And then he has to make them forget what happened. And, but what happened is that the, pa- what happens is that the patients, including the huntress and, uh, Ava Volshin, for example, they they seem to remember the truth of what's happened in the form of movies, uh, and they so they remember their own past and their and their and their violent pasts uh, in the form of movies that seem to play out in their head, and and it seems that Doctor Ware's master plan here it seems to be to keep Psycho Pirate awake long enough for as long as possible during the day, and then Psycho Pirate can sleep at night when the patients sleep, and then. And then when Psycho Pirate wakes up in the morning at the same time as the as the patients do, then Psycho Pirate, who is actually, doc, I guess, Dr. Ware, Psycho Pirate then goes back to work manipulating and keeping the emotions of the uh, of the patients in check. And and the master plan, the long con that Dr. Ware is playing is that, you know, he needs Psycho Pirate, Roger Hayden, saying, look, Roger, you just got to keep on doing that until Dr. Meridian Chase here 
uh, until she tells Maranacano that everything's fine here, nothing to see here, it's all good, and that way we can get that $6 million funding, and then when I get the $6 million, we can take off, take the money with us, and the long con. What's, and what's, um, what, what seems uh, really odd here is that Tobias Ware, we know that on day 24, on on because we're on day 19 here when this issue opens up, we know by day 24 the the shit hits the fan and Doctor Tobias Ware is going to end up dead, and and he he has bragged before he he bragged before last issue uh, Doctor Doctor uh, uh, Ware bragged about he's he's never he's always been successful he's never had an unsuccessful con and so that's interesting here and. I, I, I like, uh, you know, it seems a little bit hard to believe that, that, that this, that he's been able to be this successful for this long and, and he's been able to pull the wool over so many people's eyes and that Psycho Pirate has been able to manipulate so many people consistently and successfully in, in what had to have been over a, a span of many, many, many months. So, so it's kind of, Maybe in that respect, it lacks a little bit of verisimilitude, but I can go with it because I, I'm enjoying it. It's clear that uh, the Huntress here, the Huntress here, I, I like the ending here because as at the end of last issue, the Huntress wanted to, the Huntress knows that her mind is being played with and that she wants to remember. Uh, she wants to remember all the violent incidences, but she, she, the Huntress instinctively knows that her mind's being played with and she actually gives herself she actually wrote in blood under her bed that she, you know, exactly what's going on. So in, in, in this issue, day 19, there, there's another riot. Psycho Pirate loses it again. And Dr. Mer- uh, Meridian Ch- uh, Chase, she basically, she calls, she calls Dr. Frau, who is actually Batwoman. That's the undercover identity of Batwoman is this Dr. Frau. And, and Roger, you know, Dr. Ware, you know, manages to wake up psycho pirate and says stop them roger you know from rioting again and so he puts them all to sleep again and so this seems to be almost like a cycle he there's a riot you know psycho pirate he's losing he loses it he loses control of them they riot and then he he gets control of them again and and dr ware is getting increasingly frustrated meanwhile dr ware has he owes drug pushers money he owes the penguin money he owes the the party crashers which are the drug the drug gangs of, of Gotham, he owes them money. So things are closing in on Dr. Ware because he owns the, he owns, owes the mob money and by Penguin, he, the party crashers and, and he needs that 6 million bucks or his world's going to fall apart. And of course we know how it ends. And so all this is coming to a head. Uh, meanwhile, we got Nightwing who, who, you know, there's some, there's some interesting hints here that Nightwing has feelings for, for, for uh, the Huntress. At least some people are picking up on that. It might just be hidden there. You know, it's Nightwing. He, the guy's got an active social life. He seems to have feelings for Huntress. And he's also he's Barbara Gordon. And uh, uh, he's, Star you know, Fire. Starfire. Yeah. So, I mean, the guy, the guy is not, the guy isn't hurting in the female department by any stretch. Uh, but in any event, I enjoyed this. Uh, it, it's clear that uh, Psycho Pirate is, is playing with the emotions of all involved, particularly um, uh, uh, Ch- uh, Doctor Doctor Chase, and or is it Meridian, Doctor Meridian, Doctor Chase Meridian, Doctor Chase Meridian. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah, it's you know, again, I, I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this. That you, you, I can, you can definitely tell things are building to a head. 
Uh, they, the bat family cuts off the, the supply of the, the, the numb drug that's going in and out of Arkham Tower. Uh, the Huntress is getting more and more aware of what's going on. Uh, she writes under her own her own bed the words, uh, his hold is breaking. So clearly the Huntress knows that Psycho Pirate or, or something is, is going on. And uh, this is clearly building to a head. This is fast-paced. And I like the fact that this is coming out every week. I'm enjoying it. Uh, this isn't dragging out like Fear State. We're going to get it. We already know what the outcome is. But I think that, I think the outcome, some people are upset because the opening issue, we know that this is headed for disaster. We know that Dr. Ware ends up being, ends up dying and that the whole Arkham experiment ends up being a disaster. And some people criticize that method of storytelling because Marika Tamaki sort of played, she gave us the ending and now we're getting the story. But I'm, I suspect that maybe there's more to the ending we were given up front than meets the eye. And uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But so far, I'm impressed. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm enjoying it. Um, I, I don't think there's multiple riots. I think this is the same riot we saw last issue. I think it's just from a different perspective. Because before, when we saw the riot, it was from the perspective of the, the villains. Now we get the riot right. going down from the perspective of, of Dr. Meridian. Dr. Frau gets fired. Um because, you know, Dr. Meridian called her and, and left a message giving giving clues. So I enjoy how this is being parsed out. And I do agree with you. The, the weekly schedule allows it to be, you know, somewhat of a slow burn in terms of the mystery slowly revealing itself and building up. Uh, I'm one of the ones that said, I don't know if it was the best choice to start with the ending. But you're right. Like, I don't know. It, it's almost like the, that first issue that we got of this, uh, of the storyline was sort of the beginning, the, the beginning of the ending. It wasn't necessarily the ending ending, right? There, there's still things to be played out. The, the, uh, the tower was taken over by the inmates and we still have to have the resolution of that. Now, whether or not Dr. Ware's not actually dead, like that would be an interesting twist. Um, I do sort of find the idea of Dr. Ware being able to manipulate everything and put himself in this position and again a lot of it to do with his childhood friendship with roger hayden and and being able to tap into that resource because in a lot of ways psycho pirates one of the most powerful beings in the dc universe with his ability to control uh, emotions and in some ways it's almost limited mind control so to do all that to put all this together where is clearly a really intelligent guy i feel like a little bit of an Austin Powers moment, you know, with Dr. Evil holding the Earth hostage for $1 million. <laughs> yeah. You're doing all this. Like, if you're smart enough to put this all together, you're telling me you can't figure out a different way to make $6 million that is a lot easier than this and doesn't threaten your life because you got, uh, you know, inmates of Arkham after you, you got drug dealers after you, you got the Bat family after you. You got a lot of, you're making a lot of enemies here for only $6 million. I don't know if yeah. the payout, you know, Maybe if it was $1 billion, it might come across as, uh, you know, a little more realistic. But, you know, it's a nitpick. Overall, I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying the the characterization of Dr. Meridian. Uh, I'm enjoying the, the slow burn uh, of the mystery. And uh, and the art, I think, is fantastic. Uh, you know, Max Rayner has a, a much different style than Yvonne Reese in terms of it's not quite as detailed. But uh, you can't fault his, his storytelling. It's just as powerful as... Uh, 
as Yvonne Reese's is. So, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. The backup uh, was really interesting this week as well. So the backup is written by Matthew Rosenberg, Fernando Blanco on art, Jordi Belair on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Um, we see this boy working in the uh, the Iceberg Casino and being uh, manipulated by, I, I guess, is this Thomas Elliott? Is that who this is supposed to be? They call him Elliot, but I don't know if they're calling him by his last name or if it's yeah. If that's it's Hush, fun. right? That's a young. I would, you'd almost right. Say I, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I I took it to be, and he's kind of manipulating this other kid into sort of biting the hand that feeds him, and it, it, it comes back at the worst possible time for this kid. But what's interesting is this kid is uh, even at his young age is able to realize there have been even in his short time at his experiences with Batman, he he realizes that there are two different robins and he's sort of thrown back into the system when he gets caught working for the penguin so still don't know who he is or if it'll turn out that he's any named villain at all but i continue to, to like what's being built here the narrative that's being built matthew rosenberg this is a very i think tightly paced and tightly plotted story where so much of what happens in each subsequent issue is predicated on what came before um so uh, I, I think this is a, a really, really well-told story, and uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. My curiosity remains peaked to see how this all comes out in the end. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, and this this young Elliot uh, who who befriends this redhead, whose name we, we're still not privy to the name here. So Matthew Rosenberg is really playing. You know, we're getting all these names, and it's it's a little bit frustrating to me. I mean, that we don't even get a name for this redhead. I mean, we've speculated that it could be Nero, but I don't think it is Nero because they would have, you think they would have given him a name, but, but this Elliot sort of at one point meets a young Jason, uh, uh, young Jason Todd and, and Elliot sort of brags that they work for the penguin and that they've, uh, uh, and that they've, uh, and that they kill people for the penguin, you know, and sort of, and Jason Todd actually believes this Elliot. And of course, Batman, you know, he tells Bruce Wayne and Bruce Wayne is thinking, well, maybe this is just kids being kids and bragging and, you know, just talking out of their ass. And, uh, but, uh, as it turns out, you know, the, the, this young redhead who is friends with Elliot, uh, this young Elliot wants to rob the penguin. And so even though they work for the penguin, Elliot wants to rob the penguin. And, and so the redhead participates in that and he ends up sort of stealing a gun just at the time he gets caught by the penguin and and just when Batman and Robin sort of break in because they're or Batman, you know, Batman and Jason Todd are, are sort of breaking in because they they're investigating the penguin. And and this this redhead out of the blues betrays the penguin that this 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 young boy, this young redheaded boy, you know, and the penguin, they're escaping. But for some reason, he I don't know why he pushes a button. I don't know why he betrays the penguin. I don't know why I, w- I would have thought he would have wanted the penguin to escape with him but he doesn't and i'm not really sure why i uh and then so the young boy himself tries to escape but he's caught by jason todd as robin and and jason todd easily takes this kid out and this kid seems to be a little bit confused because again this kid is has a condition that he can't always tell the difference between costume characters which is really odd and but he 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 thinks that this young kid thinks that Batman's making an army of boys and you have to stop him like because he, he gets confused. And so, you know, again, this, uh, I'm not, I'm trying to get a handle on this, this, this redheaded kid. You know, I always think of a, when, when I think of redhead, I, I always have that expression that it's a cliche 
from back in the day, that John Ritter movie. And it's like, I'm going to beat you like a redheaded stepchild, you know? So you know, he, he just, I, I look at this kid and I think he's the redheaded stepchild that you don't want, you don't want to, you don't want to hang around, but something's wrong with this kid. And you know, he's going to, who is this kid going to grow up to be? Is this kid already a member of, um, of Batman's rogues gallery that we're not aware of? Is he somebody brand new? I don't know, but it's uh, Matthew Rosenberg definitely has me intrigued, and uh, Fernando Blanco is uh, on the arts done a pretty good job here of uh, keeping the visuals uh, top notch. Yeah, I I agree. I I, I agree. As far as him uh, turning on the penguin, yeah, I don't know. Is that Matthew Rosenberg's way of telling us that you know, right currently, right now, where this kid's at in his life, he's still more on the side of angels than not. So, I don't know. I guess we'll see. Yeah. Uh, okay. Up next, Future State Gotham, number 10, written by Dennis Culver. Art is by Giannis Milano Giannis, lettered by Troy Petrie. No colors, as usual. Uh, and there is a backup that we'll mention. Um, yeah, it's more of this Future State Gotham storyline that I that it will never come to pass, and why do I care, and not having any colors. You know, it's all the same complaints I've had about the series throughout uh i i was sort of pulled in for a moment with this idea of uh of a new joker uh fu- this future joker but even he's become sort of old and tired uh in a lot of ways so um I, yeah i i just <laughs> i just don't know why this book exists uh and on top of that we we see this moment in this issue where talia al ghul meets with somebody called plug who's somewhat of a drug dealer and she wants to buy some brain, which is basically venom, but for your brain. So venom, we know, you know, when Batman used it and Bane uses it, it has everything to do with, with pumping up your, your physicality, right? Increasing your strength. What brain is, is it's a, it's a chemical agent that does the exact same thing, but to your mind. Uh, And so, it's been uh, something that's been going around Gotham City. Nightwing wants to get some samples so he can study it, so they can figure out a way to, to neutralize it, fight against it. And so Talia sets up this meat to buy a bunch of it uh, from this guy, Plug. Uh, and then when Plug decides that the amount that Talia is offering is not enough, he kind of turns against her, and then Talia brings in backup, which is this ninja-looking guy, for some reason called Ubu, U-B-U, which I don't know if you, if this was the case in Canada, Rocky, but yeah. back in the day, there were many shows that were uh, put on by a certain uh, television production company, and at the end, they'd play their tagline, and it was a picture of a dog, and the dog's name was Ubu, and the, <laughs> the tagline would be, sit, Ubu, sit, good dog, and that's burned into every person of my generation that's burned into our memory because it was the last thing you saw for like so many shows that would come on TV, like family ties and, and, you know, just all kinds of classic sitcoms like that. And they choose to name this ninja Ubu. Like I, I can never possibly take this character seriously ever. (laughs) If I ever would, I, I, again, I just, I don't know what the point of this future state title is well well the, the, she called him ubu to to distract the fact that it was actually i think it was i think that's actually nightwing isn't it because it, it, it's not is it's, it? she, 
Ubu is one of her old henchmen. Was the name of her old henchman, and uh, she did. Oh, like, you're right. She you're was right. I knew to he cover... showed up. Yeah, I knew he showed up, but I didn't realize that that was. So that I was intentional. After, yeah. yeah. Okay. But, All right. Well, maybe that maybe that makes sense on some level. Then <laughs> I still think it's a silly name to give, even if even if it's only for a moment. I still think it's silly. Uh, and I, again, I mean, I don't know anyone, anyone who thinks that Future State was successful. So why are you dragging out something that didn't work by continuing to tell a story uh, with, you know, uh, I guess uh, it's a choice to, to go black and white, but it's not working for me. Um, and then to still charge, you know, the four ninety nine, I just, I don't get it. I'm just... I'm so ready for this to be over and done with. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't disagree with you. I, and Talia looks like a man. Talia yeah, she, look, she looks like a man. But that, that's, the, that's one of the reasons why I'm not a fan of manga to be gen, uh, in, in general. Because I, I don't like, I don't like this idea of, of drawing all the, all the characters in manga. And so many of them seem gender neutral. Like they can't make up their mind. You know, pick a gender. Is, is that hard? Come on. Uh, uh, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to sound like a, <laughs> I'm not trying to sound provocative saying that, but I mean, I'm just, you know, really, I mean, Talia, it was arguably, uh, uh, in fact, there's even a comment in here. One of the, one of the goons actually called Talia beautiful here. I mean, Talia's ugly. Talia doesn't, doesn't even look like a female here. I mean, who are you kidding? I mean, if you're, you're going to have one character call a, a, a female character beautiful in a comic book, at least actually draw the character beautiful and not draw, draw her like a man. Is that? Though I have to say the obvious, but in any event, uh, look, this is why this has been, uh, you know, if, if DC wants to cater to the manga crowd, then you got to take $3 off the price. You, you got to package this like a manga comic and you got to have the story told going backwards. I mean, isn't that how a manga story go? I mean, if you're going to go manga, go manga. You know, it's like it's like that. What what is that one movie? It's like if you're gonna go full retard, go full retard. I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, you, you don't go halfway. If you if you want a manga, go full manga. I mean, going halfway. So now in this way, we, we get we get black and white. We don't. Get, so you're you're gonna lose the the, the American comic book crowd because I don't like this. I don't like the black and white. It's no color. And then you're giving us extra pages. Then you're giving us a backup of reprinted material that's already been printed, so you can justify the ex, the extravagant price. I mean, it's a failure all the way around. Now, having said that, uh, let me just—I want to be at least—I want to at least acknowledge here that the story is not bad. But I would have much preferred this story uh, been told, like this new Joker, been told in, in color and with a, with frankly, a, a di different style of art. And I would have enjoyed this story maybe been a, a done in one uh, a year ago in Future State. Uh, future State is over. It's done. That future's not ha is not happening. I mean, that's a, this is a topic for another day, although it's kind of related to what we're talking about here. But, you know, this Future State Gotham is a comic book that should not exist. It should not exist. It, it, I don't know what this is supposed to be. Future State is not something. Every Everything does not matter. Everything does not matter. I don't care what anybody says. This, this doesn't matter to me because people are going to be confused as hell. If you're reading DC Comics and you're reading Gotham State, Future State Gotham, you're going to be confused because none of this happens. This is not the mainstream DC continuity. None of this happens. There isn't a new Joker because this future, this does not happen. This doesn't happen. So I'm not sure why are, you know, again, I'm, I'm baffled by this, but maybe, 
you know, I'm almost tempted to suggest maybe maybe we shouldn't review it if we're just going to like say like we sound like broken records every time we review this. It's not a bad story, but again, I'm not sure why this really exists. And and the other thing, I'm I'm, I'm since I'm on a roll here, I might as well just say it. The new Joker looks ridiculous. <laughs> just looks ridiculous. It looks, I mean, I mean, it just looks ridiculous. It looks like a pumpkin head, and there's no, I mean, it looks ridiculous. And I don't know. I just. It, it, this is not this is this is not doing when 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 DC is drowning in Batman titles and this uh and, and this is what they're they're putting out I mean uh this is I think a, a little bit embarrassing to be honest this is anyways uh I'll I'll stop talking now and we can move on <laughs> Yeah the only thing I'll say about the back so the backup is written by John Arcudi Sean Gordon Murphy does the art and the concept it's a fun story at least it's not a batman black it, again it's a batman black and white story called driven um now a lot of the reprints are have been from the most recent volume of batman black and white that you know they were reprinting them a year hadn't even gone by and they were already reprint, reprinting them in the back of this future state got them at least this one is from a previous volume i think it's from like 2013 or 2012 a volume of Batman black and white. And it's all about Batman being in love with cars and wanting to fix up the Batmobile and, you know, get in there with his hands and rebuild the engine himself. Uh, it very, very much sort of betrays or, or demonstrates maybe is a better word. The love of, of cars that John Arcudi and uh, Sean Gordon Murphy themselves have in real life, uh, rebuilding cars and whatnot. So if you're a car person and, uh, you know, a gearhead and a Batman fan, this would probably be like one of your favorite Bat Batman stories ever. Um, it, it's fun. Um, and again, it, I mean, it shows that just because it's black and white art doesn't mean it's bad art. Um, but this is good storytelling and it's it's good rendering uh, as opposed to the, like Rocky said, the, the over generic um, manga style of art that we're getting in the main story. Um, with with really light backgrounds and little detail, so it, it almost, in a way, by putting Sean Gordon Murphy's line work in the back of this particular issue, you're making the art in the main feature look even worse by comparison in, in a lot of ways. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it. Driven is the name of the story, but I also enjoyed it when I read it the first time. Granted, it was you know many years ago. So yeah, I, I just want to say I, I love. I, I I love Sean Gordon Murphy's art. I got his plot holes. I I I I, I supported his campaign, and I got this artist edition in black and white. His pencils are gorgeous, and I would you know if guys can get it plot holes, it's a great series. You can get still get it digitally, and it's really good. So I know I no I can appreciate this, but as you said, we had this already in Batman Black and White. But I guess it you know again putting it out there. If you're gonna reprint it again, that's all well and good. But don't don't charge more for the comic book. I mean, yep. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, exactly. just, just don't do that. But in any event, yep. uh, kudos to Sean Gordon Gordon Murphy. If uh, if I have an opportunity to promote his art, I, I got no problem doing that. He's a he's a good artist. Yep, definitely. Uh, okay, on to the next book. It's Black Label. It's Suicide Squad Blaze. It's from writer Simon Spurrier, Aaron Campbell's the artist, Jordi Belair on colors, Aditya Bidikar on letters. Uh, I I actually. I, this one flew under the radar for me. Like I don't, I don't know how somehow I missed the announcement on it. Uh, didn't know anything about it, and when I saw it in our press preview copies, I had to go and look. I was like, "Wait, Suicide Squad? Is this a digital first? What? Like, what's going on?" I'm like, no, it's a uh, it's a black label book 
that's coming out print first. So uh, it's it's different, I, I guess. Uh, you know, for all you Amanda Waller fans who can't get enough of Amanda, you get another dose for a few months. What do you think of this, Rocky? I let me bring it up here. I I enjoyed this. You know, it's it's a crazy thing. You know, I think it's quite obvious that we know that comic books are planned often. You know, over well over a year in advance, and I think that it's obvious that this is this is what is this the second or third black label suicide squad uh themed uh project that we're, we're getting i mean they just seem to be really pumping this stuff out and obviously it's because of peacemaker it's because of the suicide squad movie and even though the suicide squad movie never hit thank god peacemaker did we got the peacemaker black label that we we reviewed last week and this suicide squad blaze is another incarnation another iteration of the suicide squad that is clearly not the mainstream dc universe <laughs> uh, but they're just abs. It's absolutely kick-ass here. This uh, this blaze. Uh, the title blaze refers to refers to the fact that they essentially recruit uh, new members of a suicide squad consisting of um, uh, of of a group of people by the name they got they got they go by the names of Boris, Tanya, Mike, Zavi, and Lucille, and they basically pass the test to to join the Suicide Squad, and they become basically experimented upon and injected with an isotope. Uh, with and they're basically they're told by Amanda Waller that they only got you know they only got three months to live. You, we're going to give you superpowers. But then guess what? You're going to have superpowers. Good for you, but you only got three months to live. You're going to go out. You're going to go out with a bang. But uh, this is, um, you know, basically the, one of the lead characters here is uh, is this individual by the name of um, his name is uh, oh what uh, uh, what's his name? It's uh, uh, I think it's not Boris. What's the guy's name here? The guy who's narrating? Mike? No, M- yeah, Mike, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, the guy's name is Mike, and and Mike has got he's serving a thirty year sentence, so he, he's likely going to die in prison. So he 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 agrees to join, sort of join this, join the Suicide Squad, and he and his motivation is he's in love with this other member, Tanya, and it's really crazy. He's got a dysfunctional relationship w- with her. Uh, there's there's sex and violence and gore in this issue, like you wouldn't believe. And basically, the whole goal here is to take out this. Uh, there's a, there, basically there's a there's a metahuman or a meta creature, a monster that crashed that sort of landed on Earth, and it's it's killing it's killing about three or four people a day, and it's not a major threat, uh, but you know it's it this this creature is hungry and horny and it's following its instinct and the Suicide Squad wants to take it out, <laughs> and and uh, what. Where this really, really works, Simon Spurrier, I got to give him credit here on, 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 on the story because he, he manages to, he manages to get into the heads of all these characters and these are really screwed up people. And of course we, we know they're screwed up. This is the Suicide Squad after all, but uh, Amanda Waller is just kick-ass here. And she's basically, Amanda Waller, she's given the go ahead to, 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 to put together Project Blaze and Project Blaze is their master plan to take out this sort of like monster metahuman, this metahuman monster. And in order to do that, there's, they've got her, the idea is they're putting together a suicide squad. 
uh, and of course they already have one. And if, but but Peacemaker, Harley, Captain Boomerang, and King Shark, they don't want to. They don't want to be. Uh, they don't want to participate in the experiment where they're only going to have three months to live, and um, uh, basically she's offering them power. Uh, it's a procedure to, uh, synthetically catalyzed. Uh, the blaze is the blaze procedure. Synth- uh, synthetically catalyzed abilities of unprecedented potency. They conferred a bunch of spandex screw-ups into the most dangerous individuals on the planet. And the, the downside is that the, 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 the procedure is terminal. You die within three months, but you have a lot of superpowers. Well, of course, Peacemaker, Harley, Captain Boomerang, King Shark, they don't want anything to do with that procedure. And so Amanda Waller goes to plan B. And it, it reminded me of that Korean show, uh, where you know where you gotta where everyone's participating if if you you know everyone gets killed but the the winner the sole survivor gets all their debt uh, removed it's that Korean show I forget what it's called but in, in any event all these all these prisoners have to compete to be part of this Blaze program and they and they've got to get through a they have to get through Harley and Peacemaker in order to, and they got to get past them in order to survive and. Well, they don't. Most of them don't, but some of them succeed. And there's Harley and Peacemaker and Captain Boomerang killing all these inmates, <laughs> and and just it's just absolutely crazy. It's absolutely crazy, and it's. I mean, this was this was an adrenaline rush. This was fun. It, it had blood, guts, gore, uh, humor, vulgarity. Uh, Aaron Campbell on the art was, uh, I think, just. Just he's perfectly suited for this type of dark and gloomy story. And Jordi Belair and the colors, just she really nailed it, especially with the reds on, on whatever she nails the colors on Peacemaker, uh, uh, Peacemaker and Harley, and the bright colors when at one point there's a, 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 a the newer recruits of the Suicide Squad, uh, uh, Bo, uh, Boris and Lucille are injected with an isotope and. It it eventually basically kills them, and you know the the explosions and the violence and the blood and the guts. It it really really, it it just it really shines through, and the the machinations of of where they're going, and where this ends up, where they're they're at the end at the end of this issue where they're battling they're battling this creature, and uh. Again, there's <laughs> so much is happening. This this is so quickly paced, and it, it's got the humor that you would expect. I could I could imagine that this is so crazy. It was easy for me to imagine that a, a template or a similar plot line to this playing out in the Peacemaker uh, television series. I mean, it's it's that it's that insane, and it almost makes me wish that we got this Harley Quinn in this issue. Is she's she's definitely this isn't uh, this isn't. Uh, this is a more kick-ass Harley Quinn. These are like this is a Suicide Squad that is far more deadly. This Harley Quinn is very deadly. This Captain Boomerang is very hardcore. These are really, really dark and hardcore Suicide Squad members. You can tell that they've they've been through the paces, and uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I recommend I recommend this title if you love the Peacemaker series and you you want to get a good dose of hardcore suicide squad you want to pick up blaze it reminds me a little bit of uh strike force Mor- moratari moratai 
uh, an old Marvel series where you you join a brigade in order to, and you're given superpowers, but you you're going to die, but you don't know when you're going to die. But you you become a superpowered soldier, but the price is your lifespan is going to be shortened, and you're definitely going to die. We who are about to die, strike force martyri. In any event, th this is what Blaze is. You you become a member of the Suicide Squad, but you don't have to worry about an explosion, an exploding head. You're going to die in three months anyway, so you might as well go out in a blaze of glory, following orders and uh, dying for dying for something, as opposed to rotting away in prison. But I enjoyed this. The 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 art, the coloring, the dialogue. This was this was is this felt cinematic to me. I sat back, I enjoyed it. I re I really got into this. And man, it's it's a it really is a great time to be a Suicide Squad. You know, people talk about DC has a lot of Batman, but in second place is Suicide Squad because there's actually a lot of Suicide Squad we're getting out of DC once you cross Batman off the list. Yeah, a lot of su a lot of Suicide Squad for sure. So. Uh, I, I question the, the timing. Maybe if you wanted to tie in to the movie, these should have come out a while back. But that's either here nor there. Uh, I, I enjoyed this also. It definitely is high octane action. Uh, Amanda Waller being her normal villainous self uh, of that, there's no doubt. I mean, I, I don't know how morally. Uh, I, I mean, I don't care. I, I don't care what you you think your reason is to give people superpowers. It's going to kill them in three months. They're out there ticking time bombs. These these people aren't trained. Like it's, it's, it's reckless, it's immoral, it's, it's awful. Um, and it's what you expect from, from Amanda Waller. What is inter interesting, yeah, we do see at the beginning of the story, some, you know, something coming down from space, some sort of meteor or whatever. But the whole point of, uh, of this mysterious creature or whatever that's, that's going around killing, again, a very small <laughs> number of people, but it's happening on such a regular basis. And, you know, why can't the Justice League catch this? this guy and you know they're thinking it's some horrendous creature and then when they finally get a little bit of footage of it we're, we're told it's just some guy it looks just like some random guy um obviously the fact that they've showed that meteor in the beginning he must have been affected in some way maybe he's possessed by some sort of alien consciousness or what have you like that that portion of the story is still to be examined but Cy Spurrier has definitely given us some hints about what's going on he gives us uh, some, almost like a monologue from this uh, professor of metahuman studies. And she's talking about how, you know, li living in a world where there's all these superpowered beings, but even with the spectacular abilities, it, it's everybody sort of knows what to expect, right? Because you're still, you're still living in a society. And even though these metahumans, that are villainous might put their desires, you know, ahead of the collective. They're still doing things that you can understand. They're, they're robbing a bank, right? Because they want money. Well, a normal person wants money too, right? Like, uh, or, or they're trying to amass power so that, so they can, you know, be in charge of people and be important. Well, that's a desire that normal people want as well. So they're all societal motives. They're all normal motives, but all of a sudden you have this, this just some guy who's out there. And like Rocky said, we're told he's hungry and he's horny and he's going around and he's pulling people's heads off and, and, and eating their brains or, or whatever <laughs> he's doing. Right. That's not, that's not a normal thing. That's not a normal societal thing that people will do, whether they have powers or not, whether people have powers or not, they'll still rob banks. They'll still try to amass power. They'll still 
manipulate others to, to put themselves, you know, higher. What this guy's doing is not, not normal. It's definitely abnormal. So now add in this incredible level of power he has. And obviously you have, uh, a, you, you have somebody who's very dangerous on your hands. And, and that sort of is why the government, like, even though it's only two or three people, you know, once in a while, no, this, this does need to need to be solved. And maybe that aspect of it, that, that abnormal aspect is why they're willing to go to such great lengths. But of course, if you want something immoral and, and kind of evil done, and you're going to say, well, the ends justify the means, Amanda Waller is a good choice, obviously, because uh, we know that she has no morals and is <laughs> yeah. in her own way kind of kind of evil. Um, but beyond that, the the this version of the Suicide Squad, Harley Quinn, Captain Boomerang, King Shark, Peacemaker, they're all very humorous. Uh, I like the characterization that Cy Spurrier gives them. Uh, what I f- find so interesting, we're getting all this Peacemaker stuff, and I wonder if people will get burnt out on Peacemaker. Um, I, I obviously haven't watched any of the TV show or what have you, but I, I do find it interesting. Like, why Peacemaker? Like, I mean, all this came from the John Cena portrayal and the James Gunn movie, and then his TV show. I mean, it, obviously, there must have been some executives at Warner Brothers that saw, you know, early versions of the movie that said, well, Peacemaker is the one that steals the show. He's the one that it's going to be a fan favorite. Let's already start working on his uh, TV show for HBO Max. Remember, that all happened. His his TV show on HBO Max was announced long before the Suicide Squad movie was in theaters or anybody had seen it. So, you know, give credit to the, you know, all the fans are so quick to blame the Warner Brothers executives and say they do a terrible job constantly. Give them some credit for recognizing that Peacemaker was going to be the breakout character. And then, you know, he's got his one shot that we had recently. I'm sure he'll be in, in he's showing up in the regular Suicide Squad comic. He shows up here in this one. He's been in a lot of the other Suicide Squad content we've had come out. Wouldn't surprise me if he gets an ongoing. My understanding, and please, if somebody out there knows differently, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is the only reason that Peacemaker even showed up in the Suicide Squad movie to begin with is because James Gunn was just a fan of the character. So <laughs> this, this, this huge popularity of Peacemaker is really, you could all lay it at the feet of, of James Gunn. Now, just because he liked the character doesn't mean he was going to get him right in the terms of portrayal or whatever. So obviously there's other people, all the writers of the script, John Cena's portrayal, all that kind of stuff. But really it comes down to not, none of that happened. None of that has a chance to happen unless James Gunn is a fan of the character, and then, you know, we see that continue. Now, I got to assume that James Gunn is a fan of the Adrian Chase version of the Vigilante as well, which we've seen in other media before. I think he showed up in Arrow, but he was a completely different sort of character. The The name and the visual of the Vigilante in the Peacemaker uh, series is very true to the character in the, the comic, the 50-issue Marv Wolfman um, the, uh, character that showed up in teen, new teen Titans first, but again, I haven't seen the, uh, haven't seen the show, but my understanding is he's very comedic, almost like a Deadpool like character, which is the complete opposite of who he is in that very grounded and gritty Marv Wolfman series. So mm-hmm. I have mixed feelings about that. You know, I, I haven't seen the TV show. I'll watch it at some point. My hope would be that the TV show is popular enough that they, it would, possibly bring back the adrian chase vigilante character but i wouldn't want him brought back if he's going to be the clown that you see in the tv show so 
again, mixed feelings, but it's neither here nor there. I just find it very interesting. The fact that this character that most D, even some hardcore DC fans didn't have any idea who he was because Peacemaker was like, he wouldn't even show up in the big events, like, you know, final crisis or anything like that. Like he, they never used him. Um, and so for, for him to go from basically an unknown to now this super popular character, I, I just find that, that fascinating. So, um, he shows up here along with those other members that I, that I mentioned and, and yeah, they're, they're used greatly for comedic effect, but that's sort of their, almost their only role. They're more, you know, framework characters because we really are focusing on these other new characters that we're introduced to this Mike guy who turns down the option to get powers and have his life shortened, turns it down like in a, in a hot second until he hears Tanya's name. Uh, and then all of a sudden he's in. So yeah, I did appreciate the the Squid Game. I think that's the show you were referring to. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, the Squid Game kind of uh, dash to get through the doors and get this power, but, which is interesting. Like you guys all know that you're going to die if you get these powers, but if other people want it, then you want it too. Like kind of using the, almost um, like psychological manipulation to convince these prisoners that that, that this is actually a good thing. Um, and and the main guy, Mike, I mean, the fact that he gets his superpower, you didn't mention this, Rocket, his, his superpower is that his arms are invisible. Yeah. <laughs> just, just his arms. Yeah. Just his arms. So it's so ridiculous. It's so yeah. absolutely it, useful. It is. It should, be, it should be noted, though, that every time one of them dies, the remaining ones get more power. So Yeah, so I was going to mention that. So right. now maybe his legs will be invisible, too. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah. Who knows? It's a great, yeah, it's a really great and fun um, aspect of the story. And the fact that this guy, Mike, who, you know, he's self-described as as kind of just so average um, and, and has has led somewhat of a pointless life because he, he can never get above the middle is what he said, no matter how hard he strives. So, you know, why keep doing one thing when you know you're not going to be able to advance beyond a certain point? So... In his life, he's jumped around from, you know, career to career to career because he knows he's kind of reaching the limits of what is possible for him. Um, and so to give him these powers and have him be so ridiculous and have him be our POV character, I think is a great, uh, great way to do it from some, from Cy Spurrier. So a, a lot of good stuff in here from just some guy, just some human acting, the way he's acting, which is so abnormal what alien influence, what, what's causing them to act this way. Uh, this whole idea of uh, acting outside of societal norms, plus the, the relationships between these new members of the suicide squad blaze all told to the stories of, of, you know, the most average human on the planet. Yeah. A lot of great stuff. The Aaron Campbell art is very visceral and very gritty, uh, which helps sell this as, you know, less fantastical and more grounded, even though it's, super fantastical when you're talking about giving people powers where they're going to to die in three months. And and the other thing we should mention, yeah, so five of these guys got these powers, one died, and his whatever power he had left uh, got divided among the other four, so they become more powerful. But one thing Amanda Waller does say, yes, you the four remaining get more powerful, but now your lifespan's been shortened even more. So you've you know, <laughs> yeah. maybe now it's only maybe now it's only two two months. So uh, I imagine that it's all going to uh, wrap up in a blaze of glory, uh, which is, you know, probably where the, the title comes from, you know? Um, yeah. 
what's the the saying? Uh, I think it was a rock and roll musician. You know, I, I'd rather you know burn out than than fade away. You know, go go down in a blaze of glory. So yeah, yeah, good, good stuff. And I expect um, <laughs> yeah, I expect people to be talking about this uh, in in really glowing terms. Uh, okay. Up next, uh, we'll see if you have much to say about this one, Rocky, because I sure don't. It's Batgirls number three, uh, part three of six, one way or another. Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad handle the story. Jorge Corona on art, Sarah Stern and Yvonne Placencia on colors, Becca Carey on letters. What'd you think? Uh, well, I, um, yeah, um, well, again, we, we, we've, we've talked about this at length. I, you know, be writers, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, they're uh, clearly they're They were tasked with, I mean, Hey, it's called Batgirls. Cause we got all the main characters. We got Barbara Gordon, Oracle used to be Batgirl. We got Cassandra King used to be a Batgirl and we got spoiler Stephanie Brown used to be a Batgirl. Well, they're, so let's call the title Batgirls. It's kind of a cliche reason to put them all together, but that's what they did. And they did it after Fear State. And um, everything from the covers, the alternate covers, uh, Happy Galentine's Day. I mean, this is very clearly geared toward a younger audience. But is it? If you look at the covers, the alternate covers, the co the B covers, it kind of is. It's it ages 13 plus. Uh, they've de-aged Cassandra Kane and de-aged Stephanie Brown. There was even an uncomfortable little moment on Twitter where Michael W. Conrad, when he was told that uh, Stephanie Brown actually used to date uh, uh, Tim Drake, that, oh, well, I mean, uh, if she, if she's, because he, he said that she was only like, he suggested she was only 12 or 13. And then, of course, if, if Tim Drake was dating her, that would mean he's guilty of statutory rape. So that was an uncomfortable moment. So then suddenly she was... 14 years old. Um, anyways, I, I just <laughs> kind of find that comical in any event. Uh, this, th this story is, uh, you know, uh, artist, Jorge Corona. It's a, uh, he does a, he does a decent enough job here. His, his artistic style has, it's grown on me. I think it suits the, the, the narrative and the, the younger version of the characters that's coming out here where, where I think that this, this, the story has suffered is that I don't, it doesn't feel enough to me like a character driven story yet. It feels more plot driven to me. Uh, at one point in the, in this narrative, um, um, th there is a, it should be noted that, um, the, the villain, a uh, tutor, uh, tutor is a uh, graffiti artist who mixed in when he creates the art mixed in with the art is a, is a form of, uh, Scarecrow's fear toxin from Fear State, and so whenever this this tutor uh, uh, draws art, anyone who gets close to the graffiti art, it affects their minds a little bit, and they hallucinate. And so, and so, it's not really clear what the motives of this tutor character is. We're not even sure. Maybe he's not even, but he, but he's the bad guy. And at one point, Stephanie and Cassandra both come close to this, to I guess this sort of this sort of gas, and. They, they both hallucinate apparently seeing their father. Now, this is the one thing that could save this series for me is if we get more character work. Because Cassandra Kane, father is, her father is like David Kane. <laughs> Cassandra uh, and Stephanie Brown's father is the clue master. Uh, to say that they both come from dysfunctional childhoods would be an understatement. Uh, of course, Cassandra Kane was raised to be an assassin. 
She was raised to, to understand the, the, the language of motion. She was arguably, she couldn't speak for most of her young life. And since she's younger now, it's even more problematic. And then we got Stephanie Brown, who's insecure at the best of times. And she, her father was a, a villain, a member of Batman's rogues gallery. And so the fact that they're both hallucinating their father, you know, at one point in this narrative, Batgirl, uh, pardon me, Cassandra Kane, I got to be more specific. Cassandra Kane says to Stephanie, I, I saw my father. She says, yeah, I saw mine too. She says, no big surprises for the big dad club. But here's what bothers me about that is we're told that they hallucinated that, but we're not shown it. And to me, that to me that that would be the most interesting aspect of this. Why are they hallucinating their fathers? If they have daddy issues, and, and by the way, it's easy to imagine why they might, but tell us or show us. And the fact that it wasn't shown is really disappointing. Um, I really love the coloring in this. The coloring in this comic is this really is a beautiful comic book. Corona's art, and I'm not sure who the colorist is. I, I'm sorry, I apologize. Uh, uh, who's the colorist? Uh, uh, but the the coloring is just really fantastic. It, it pops there's, off the page. Two, and, yeah, there, there's two colorists listed: Sarah Stern and Yvonne Placencia. Yeah, they do an amazing job, and it really fits the the one character tutor. Who, who, whose graffiti art actually actually is part of the gas. I mean, it, it, it contains the, the, the paint actually contains a, a form of the fear toxin, which sort of like in, infects people. So it's, it's, I like the creativity of the storyline. I think that's good. I give them credit for that. I, I just want more character work. I want to, I want to see Cass, Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown. I want them to struggle with their past. I mean, especially if they're younger now. If they're younger, they've got to be dysfunctional in some way. And I'm not seeing it playing this off as if they're just a bunch of girls like going on a little adventure to fight psychopaths and and crazy psychotics like the seer. It just seems a little bit off to me. It seems like it's dealing with really adult material, and yet this is geared toward a younger audience. This is like a, it still feels like a comic book that is struggling for an identity and it's not clear what it wants to be, but they're drawn to look younger. So I guess it's for a younger audience. But then when you start to read it, it's kind of a, I think it wants to to have them. It, it's like it, it deals with younger heroes, but it, it's almost crying to want to deal with more adult subjects. And I wanted to deal with the more adult subjects and the, and the, and, and, I want the daddy issues. I think that creates the drama, you know, and I think that make what's what makes it interesting. But um, because I don't, uh, at one point, Stephanie says in this narrative, you know, you know, you know, we should hang out more. You know, why don't we go out together? And I actually don't want that. I don't. I don't want Barbara Gordon and and, and Stephanie and and Cassandra to go out and talk and have conversations in this comic. I don't. I don't. I don't want that. I want action packs. I want I want Lady Shiva to show up. I mean, my God, Lady Shiva, the greatest martial artist in the DC universe, arguably, easily top three in my opinion. Where the no, I want her out showing up in the uh, in this narrative. Uh, I mean, this is Cassandra Kane. I mean, I mean, the background of Stephanie Brown. Get Black Mask in here. Uh, these I, I don't they, all this potential. If if you if you know the history of these three characters, the fact that we're dealing with these new characters tutor and entropy and 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 seer seer they, i just i'm not interested in in these villains here i mean tutor i, I think tutor Cree is a character that allows that allows the artist and colors colorists here to to really show off their their artistic talents and the coloring but beyond that the story here isn't really pulling me in i want more character work and this doesn't 
it's not quite hitting for me but again i'm i'm i'll stay on board for this cuz i but i'm really curious to see where they're going to go i really hope they do something with with uh you know the backgrounds here of uh, cassandra and stephanie brown but because really i'm not seeing it here other than stephanie brown showing some insecurity and cassandra kane you know trying to prop her up saying, oh, you're good, you're really good. But Stephanie Brown is, you know, she's always been insecure and feels like the weakest member of the Bat family because she is the weakest member of the Bat family. I don't think she's worthy of the mantle of Batgirl, but that's just me. In any event, uh, uh, it's it's, it's still not for me, uh, and I don't think it ever will be, quite frankly, but I can appreciate what, I think Clunan and Conrad are doing, but I don't know. What do you get out? What did you get out of this? Well, I couldn't agree more about Stephanie Brown. <laughs> she's not worthy of, and she never has been. I mean, she, she's got no training, you know, or very little training and whatever. Um, yeah. I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said. This comic doesn't have an identity. The, the seer storyline, the seer character seems very juvenile, very one dimensional and perfectly suited to be the villain to make this a book for younger readers uh, who can, you know, read it and have fun and be introduced to the to DCU. This tutor, uh, the, the, uh, the magistrate leftovers, I'll call them that are, that are here that show up. Um, all that is more adult. It, it tries to have a little more nuance. Uh, their motivations seem to be a little more complicated. Uh, and I'm not saying it, de- it necessarily makes any sort of logical sense, but it, it adds levels of complexity to the story that I think might be off-putting for, for younger readers. So, yeah, it, it's got to make up your mind, like go one direction or the other. Um, and and they have, you're right, Stephanie Brown and, and Cassandra Kane have both been de-aged in a lot of ways. And that's what where this, um, this feeling that this is for younger readers comes in because they're so much younger and seem so much less experienced that they, in my mind, seem – would probably be more relatable to, to younger readers, but they're not necessarily as interesting to me. Uh, because again, I, I want them to, to, like you said, like dive into the, 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 the issues that they have with their fathers or, uh, or their own struggle for identity or, uh, or Stephanie Brown's uh, lack of self-confidence or Cassandra Kane's trauma that she's dealt with. Like, the, but again, those are more adult, ideas so maybe you don't want to go there maybe you do want to keep them deep so just but make a decision and go in one direction one way or the other um so uh, i guess we'll see uh, I'm, I'm not enjoying this i don't think it's terrible um i think storytelling wise uh the art is really good where i where i lose it with the jorge corona art is he does this thing and he's not certainly not the only one uh, but he does this thing in his art to add texture where he just sprinkles ink on it, dark ink, like black ink. And you, you'll see, you see it like page after page after page where there's just black ink droplets for no, no reason. Like they just, they're just there. Um, if you want an example, you can look at the page where Brock Gordon is holding up uh, a piece of paper where she's doing these Rorschach tests on Cassandra Kane and uh, and Stephanie Brown to see if there's any lingering um, effects from the 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 toxin, the fear toxin that Tudor put out. And on the back of that page, there's just a bunch of of uh, 
of black dots. And you're like, wait, why, why, why are these black dots? Well, it's literally because, what you just said is literally on every page and I'm looking yeah. for it, but I see it, especially when you mentioned it, it's like, you're absolutely right. There's yeah. watches it, and everywhere it, it, in, in all the backgrounds. It's, it's yeah, there. I don't. And again, he's not the only one that does it. And I, I understand why they do it. It's to add texture. I'm not a fan of it. Like I, I've seen Jim, like Jim Lee does it on a lot of his work with whiteout actually. And it, it kind of brightens the paint, but usually it's at night and there's stars or it's snow or there's actually a reason for it. Um, but here, all it serves to do is dark. And if you're trying to lighten things, I can understand that. Why are you trying to darken a book? Why are you trying to darken a book? Especially if, if you're aiming at it younger readers, this should be bright. And a lot of the colors are very bright and vibrant. You know, Rocky was talking about, um, this this character of Tudor and his graffiti or whatever being super bright and, and that being almost a way to bring in bright colors. But even on those bright colors, even on those pages, there's this, again, this overlay of, of this these ink droplets. I'm just, I'm not a fan of it. I, I don't feel that Jorge Corona's art is is the best suited to, to tell a, a superhero story. So uh, yeah, this this one, this one, this Batgirl's title is a little puzzling to me. Uh, I just don't understand where they're trying to to go with it. So uh, curious to know what the sales are would be on it. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, Wonder Woman number seven eighty four is up next. It's also written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. Uh, Marcio Takara is the artist. Tamara Bonvillain is the colorist. Pat Brosso on letters. Uh, we get to the end the conclusion of the through a glass darkly story uh wonder woman confronts the image maker takes him out we're basically told that apparently when she was returned to earth after traveling through all the different afterlives without realizing it she fell or, or traveled through the the mirror universe um which i i take to be the same universe that mirror master travels through when he travels from place to place. <laughs> but yet we've never heard of this image maker before. <laughs> yeah. um, so anyway, that got mirror makers attention when wonder woman uh, crashed through there and he's trying to convince her to come and live in, in uh, the mirror universe with him where everything can be uh, perfect. And the, the, the Wonder Woman that it's existing in reality is actually her her reflection and not who she actually is. So he seems deluded <laughs> to say the least. Wonder Woman, of course, doesn't fall for it. Um, so you know she she saves the day as you would uh, expect her to. I didn't mind the story. It, it wasn't you know groundbreaking or anything like that in terms of what's going on with this um, this image maker character. I do appreciate. Clunin and Conrad trying to add to her her rogues gallery. Maybe he'll he'll show up again. Maybe another artist will use him. So all that was uh, was fine. Uh, I didn't necessarily have a, a problem with it. Um, and there and there are other things as well that uh, are interesting, like the fact that this shining knight who showed up a few issues ago wanting to battle uh, Wonder Woman, who's been manipulated by Doctor Psycho or Doctor Sisko, turns out to be Siegfried. That's interesting to bring Siegfried back into the story because Wonder Woman was and him had such a strong relationship. And now you've brought in this idea of a love triangle between Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor and Siegfried. So there's potential for story there. Not that I'm necessarily interested in reading a Wonder Woman love triangle. But again, I recognize I'm, you know, maybe not the target audience for Wonder Woman. And that part might uh, work well. The, the, the thing that doesn't work for me that I, I continue to not understand is their use of dead man. 
everybody can see dead. I mean, the whole point of Dead Man is nobody can see Dead Man, un, you know, unless you have magical powers, which Wonder Woman does, so that's fine, uh, or he's inhabiting another body. But yet, throughout the Dead Man appearances in this book, everybody seems like they can see him and hear him all the time. I don't, I don't get that. That that's to me, that's a big something that's that's a big mistake. Uh, whether you want to call it a continuity mistake or editorial mistake, whatever. Like, no, you got him. Like Dead Man is an important character. I like Dead Man in my mind. Get him right, uh, or don't use him. So that that kind of bugs me. The other thing that I don't particularly care for, I'm not sure if Mar uh, Marcia Takara is rushed, but his art isn't as clean as I'm used to to seeing it. So uh, again, it's a little bit of a nitpick. His storytelling is still fantastic. Like I love his page layouts. I love his panel layouts. He doesn't break panels a lot, but when he does, he uses it to great effect. So in terms of, of storytelling, um, I really enjoyed it. But yeah, for some reason, his art, and the only thing I can think is maybe he's a little rushed, like I said, um, because it, it just it's just not as clean as I'm used to seeing it. Um, so overall, I, this Wonder Woman title right now is a, sort of average to me. There's potential for it to be a lot better, um, but... I don't know. I, I had really high hopes when uh, Clunan and Conrad first came on. We really loved their first issue, but they've been lacking some consistency. Um, there are moments of brilliance, and there are moments of head. I scratch my head trying to figure out what the heck they're trying to do. So, uh, what do you think of the main story, Rocky? Um, uh, this 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 frustrated me to no end. Uh, this was a this is a complete. This is part four. This is the finale of uh, you know what's it called through a glass darkly. Yeah. I mean, four issues of this nonsense, and and for what? For what? For Image Maker? Image Maker? This this new villain who is like you say, there's nothing original about him whatsoever. Totally uninspired, complete rip off of Mirror Master. Except there's one difference between Mirror Master and Image Maker. Mirror Master is actually an interesting character. <laughs> That's the difference. What is this Image Maker? First of all, what is the motive here? I'm trying to I I tried to find a motive in four issues. I was trying to find a motive for Image Maker. The best I could come up with, and this is an exact quote, is his goal is to, and I quote, restore the realm of reflection to the true reality. What does that even mean? And and who cares? And and his and his and his attempt to bring Wonder Woman to convince Wonder Woman of this, join me in the reflection. And the way to convince Wonder Woman that he shows Wonder Woman, uh, he creates a a reflection of another time when Wonder Woman gets along with Steve Trevor and their relationship is fine. Th that That's it. There, there's a flashback here or, there, or there's a, there's a, I guess a hallucination where, you know, S Steve Trevor comes up and they, you know, they're getting along and they're in love. And of course, Steve Trevor is just an illusion. And she, sh she uses the magic lasso to shatter because she knows it isn't real. And I'm thinking this is the image maker's way to, to try to convince Wonder Woman to join, join him in the mirror world. Or the, the or the where it's like seriously, this is so. I hate to say this, but this is really one-dimensional storytelling. This is something I'd see in DC superhero girls. This really, really is. I mean, is is like how stupid do they think Wonder Woman is? Wonder Woman spent the first ten issues 
pretty much getting laid by laid by Siegfried whenever she wanted. She came back. She can go and she can have sex with with Steve Trevor whenever she wants. But no, they forcibly have made Wonder Woman out of character. This is a woman who's got no problem telling people how she feels. She's Wonder Woman, but yet she can't go up to Steve Trevor. But in a vain attempt to try to make Wonder Woman more relatable, they're giving her insecurity because she's a strong woman, except when it comes to Steve Trevor and a man, then suddenly she gets insecure. That's not Wonder Woman. That's that's out of character. I'm sorry, it is. No, you could say, well, that's just my opinion. Fine, all the power to you, but it's not. That's that's this isn't this isn't the Wonder Woman that that I know. This dead man is completely out of character as well. This they got the power set on dead man all wrong, too. But uh it doesn't stop there. The um, so the, the motive is all wrong. Um, Image Maker apparently thinks that trying to kill Wonder Woman for, over the course of four issues is a way to convince her to come to his world. So attempting to kill her—that yeah, that's a real great way to to motivate it. Um, he thinks that the mirror verse is paradise. Join me in paradise. We got no evidence that is paradise. We, we, we've already, we spent the first 10 issues of Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad's story, 10 issues with Wonder Woman making her way back to this world. And we thought we were done with that nonsense and that we were going to finally get a different story, but it ends up we're not. Now we got another four issues of this image maker who was of all the, of all the worlds that Wonder Woman went through in those first 10 issues, the, by far the most uninteresting character so far has been image maker, but we got four issues of this idiot. This is a, and why, and why did we drag this story on? We've got this lurking threat. We got the multiverse in danger. Wonder Woman came back from the dead to save us from the great darkness. And she's sitting here and we're, we're, we're subjected to image maker. Is this, is this a joke? I mean, it, yeah. Rhetorical question. Spoiler alert. Yeah, it's a joke. This drives me crazy. Um, the other thing is, is, I mean, Siegfried's back. Oh, yay. Siegfried's back. So now, apparently, I don't, we don't know how Siegfried's back. That's not revealed. But uh, what, there's a huge glaring inconsistency here. Dead Man goes back to Siegfried's grave in order to defeat uh, the Shining Knight. Because at the end, they, she defeats the Image Maker. Then the Shining Knight turns on Wonder Woman and is attacking Wonder Woman. Dead Man shows up because he goes back to Siegfried's gra uh, gra grave and he, he grabs the sword uh, because... Why did he think that Wonder Woman needed a sword? I don't know. He's just dead. That's, that's not explained. He throws Wonder Woman the sword. And then Wonder Woman defeats the, the Shining Knight. And the Shining Knight says that, uh, oh, the sword burns. It burns. And then it's revealed, oh, that this is actually really Siegfried. So apparently Siegfried's own sword burns him. Why would Siegfried's so own so sword cause him to feel a burning sensation? That's never explained. And to make it, to top it off, Wonder Woman, with once she knows it's Siegfried, Siegfried then at the end of the comic is recovering in the hospital. And she re she takes the same sword that injured him before and burned him, takes the sword to him in the hospital where he's supposed to be healing, but it doesn't burn him in the hospital at the end. Why not? So that inconsistency is not explained. This thing is a mess. It's an absolute mess. And, and, and what, what purpose did it serve? And then at the end, we got Dr. Psycho, who is, mentions, mentions Villainy Incorporated. And so, where's, why are we supposed to look forward to Villainy Incorporated? What's Villainy Incorporated? Who cares? <laughs> like, who cares? How about, I mean, I, 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 I don't, this, this thing is, oh man, I just, thank God the backup is way better. 
at least the backup, we're getting some information to lead us into trial of the Amazons. And uh, well, I wait. Well, I can start talking about that, or you can uh, lead us into the the backup. Yeah, I mean, I'll just push back a little bit on. Uh, I think a lot of this is. I mean, yeah, it might not be a hundred percent explained explicitly, but I mean, she does use the sword that Dead Man gives her to defeat. You know, she doesn't have any weapons, uh, so she does use the sword, Graham, to um, to take out the Image Maker. And the only thing I can think about it burning the Shiny Knight is because he he was brought back. We're told he's brought back through dark magic which Dr. Sisko has used to, to bring him back and he's under Dr. Sisko's control. So my only thought is his sword burns him because he's possessed by Dr. Psycho. And once he's no longer possessed by Dr. Psycho, the sword doesn't burn him. Uh, but again, I mean, I'm, I'm making assumptions. You're right. It's not, it's not laid out, but I mean, I think that's okay. Sometimes yeah, no, you're right. Not, it could be that. Yeah. I'm just so ranting. I'm, I'm just frustrated. I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm not as I'm not as harsh on it as you, but I I do agree with you on on the and I said as much on the dead man. Like they're getting dead man all wrong, both in in characterization and and what his powers are. So I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see. Uh, the the backup, yeah, the backup is interesting, but I, I don't know. This is it's like I like the main story more, more, and you like the backup more. So it's what lies beneath finale from Vidayala. Uh, she's the writer, Skylar. Uh, I'm sorry, they are the writer. Uh, Skylar Partridge is the artist, Ramona Fajardo Jr. on colors, Becca Carey on letters. Uh, I think Vita does a good job, and, and they have done a good job throughout of setting up the, the trial of the Amazons. If, if I have any complaint about what they've done, is I feel like maybe this could have been paced a little bit faster, or maybe it's just that I'm so anticipating this trial of the Amazons to, to have a, a cohesive story that pulls in all the different aspects of the Amazons, pulls in Wonder Woman, pulls in Yara Floor, um, pulls in Nubia. And, you know, let's get them all on the same page and tell, a, you know, a big epic story. I'm a big fan of Vida Ayala as a writer in general. And I think all the things that they've done in kind of the, the Wonder Woman corner of the DC universe have been very, very good. Uh, Stephanie Williams, who's been writing the Nubia and the Amazon, has also done a really, really good job. So, yeah, let's pull them all in and and let's see if we can sort of establish sort of a baseline for where all the Amazons are uh, moving forward. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm just ready for it. I'm ready for it to start. And and granted, there were some aspects of of this story that uh, that Vita gave us that that maybe we didn't know or, or, you know, but it just, it feels like a lot of setup and I'm just ready for it to start. Um, and the Skylar Patridge art is, is gorgeous and fantastic, beautiful, beautifully colored. Yeah. Uh, it's clear Artemis is going to play a big role in, in the trial of the Amazons. Um, and that the lost tribes are going to be brought back uh, together. So will that actually work or will they end up fractured in the end again? I guess we'll have to, to wait and see. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, I enjoyed it, but at the same time, I'm just like, I'm at the point now where I've gotten so much of this setup. I'm just like, let's go, let's go already. Let's get it started. So, uh, what do you think? I, I love this. I, I think Scholar Patrick's art is fantastic. I, I wish she was the sole artist on the entire Wonder Woman title. I wish she was the artist on Wonder Girl and, uh, uh, I don't mind the art on, uh, 
on Nubian the Amazons, but Skylar Patridge is, is just an amazing artist. Uh, this backup story is crucial. Uh, I wish it, uh, we, we've, uh, the last four issues of, of the main story in Wonder Woman with, uh, by Clunan and Conrad have been wastes of paper. Uh, uh, I did a, I did a, my toilet paper top three and, uh, uh, Wonder Girl was on it, but, uh, I, I could have eaten, you know, I, Clooning in Conrad's four, last four issues of Wonder Woman just narrowly avoided uh, being toilet paper. But uh, I got to tell you, it, it served no purpose the last four issues of the mainstream Wonder Woman. But this uh, this backup story, think of how much. But I wish that we could have had this backup story flushed out because we know that Artemis here meets up meets secretly with Queen Atalanta, with Hippolyta, and Antia. Antiope, who is the uh, the second person to come out of the Well of Souls. The first person was Nubia, and uh, they we know that uh, Wonder Woman's return uh, from uh, out of Death Metal was a sign was, was a sign that it's time for the for the Amazon races to all unite for the Equizita and the Banamagdal and the Themyscarans to all unite as one Amazonian race. But we know that there's this Anaki Anake nation that we saw in, in the Wonder Woman annual that has a claim to the land upon which Themyscira is based. And we also know that there's machinations that peop- that monsters are escaping from Doom's doorway and that we know that there's a, there's a huge uh, contest amongst the uh, three Amazonian tribes. Good night. Kissing my daughter. Good night. Uh, we know that there's a huge contest between the that the, there's going to be a contest between the three Amazonian tribes to guard Doom's doorway, and that's leading into the trial of the Amazons. But there's a secret. Something's going on here. Apparently, uh, there's a secret that uh, that Antiope is basically saying that telling the Artemis that you can't tell Diana. So apparently, Diana, Wonder Woman, cannot know that there's a plan involving Artemis to make a particular sacrifice. So there's a secret that Antiope, Atalanta, Queen Atalanta, and Hippolyta and Artemis now know that no one else can uh, no one else can know yet. And this is what's leading into. I find the whole thing fascinating when I when I think that there's so much that we don't know about the Equisita tribe because of the just the horrible narrative, the way it played out with Wonder Girl. We we still know so little about the Equisita tribe. We when I think of just how badly this setup has been for Trial of the Amazons, it's really hard to believe that we have um, that you know. Apparently, all the all the editor the editorial teams and the creative teams of the Wonder of the Amazon Amazon titles have been meeting every you know apparently meeting every two weeks. There's just there's very little evidence of that. Uh, but what's clear here is the saving grace of this backup is that Vita Ayala is the writer. She's a she's a really good writer. She makes it clear. She builds up suspense. This is consistent with her newbie in the Amazons. Uh, I wish that uh, you know. I'm I'm really hoping that Vita Ayala and Stephanie Williams are the ones that are steer handling uh, the trial of the Amazons and and maybe keep Clunan and Conrad and Joelle Jones away from it <laughs> and let let her and Stephanie Williams take the, take the reins because this this is the best. Uh, this backup is what saves the day uh, in much the same way as Justice League Dark backup saved Justice Bendis's Justice League. And that's all I got to say about that. Yeah, we should be clear that um, Vita's non-binary, so they, not not she. They, I, I apologize. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, know I don't you mean, do. I don't mean yeah. no disrespect. I just, I'm, I'm not yeah. used to speaking in the, yeah. the proper pronouns. Yeah. Uh, okay, up next we have Batman Urban Legends number 12. Uh, four stories in here. Super frustrating that the press preview copy that we got 
doesn't have the the credits page so um but the first story is bound to our will which is part two of six also written by vita ayala the art is by nicola Semegia, nica nick filardi on colors steve wands on letters um i this one's okay i thought the the art from uh Semegia was better in this second part than the first what's interesting is this is part two of six the story doesn't feel big enough to really have six parts, but I trust Vita will bring in some some more interesting aspects of the story to perhaps expand the scope because it, it does sort of feel like in the second part that the problem has been solved in a lot of ways. The, the, the rift that we saw ripped open uh, in a greater way than ever before in the first part of the story is sealed here by Batman and Zatanna. Uh, but apparently something uh, something escaped, uh, and I, I suppose that is where the narrative will go forward from here. Uh, and then we see Constantine show up, and of course there are these romantic overtones or undertones, however you want to think about it, uh, between Bruce and Zatanna. And for Constantine to show up, who has you know romantic history with Zatanna, there could be some interesting uh, tension and and story to be told there. So uh, yeah, I. I mean, I'm in. I'm a fan of Vita. Just not sure what's going to happen yet. Like, it almost feels like th this could have been a two-parter. Um, but again, she uh, they they threw in the the aspect of this this creature who apparently feeds on life energy that uh, kills a puppy. It's very sad for you to do that, Vita. But uh, <laughs> and then and then yeah, and Constantine showing up. So yeah, I I thought it was pretty solid. What do you think, Rock? Uh, yeah, I did too. I actually share your sentiment that uh, uh, I felt that this was could this story could end at the end of this because I was more I'm more interested in the relationship between Batman and Zatanna. You know, you know, at one point, in fact, what I really like what Veda Ayala has done here is that it 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 plants the possibility that maybe Zatanna and Batman really maybe they could theoretically be soulmates. I know I'm stretching it, but just bear with me here. They might have more in common than we've ever really truly believed. And maybe they genuinely loved each other when they were younger. But because of a spell that went wrong, they they they, they have to meet every year to sort of close this gap into another reality uh, to prevent malevolent forces from coming in. And, and so every year they meet at this location and Superman in the first part, you know, sort of picked up on it and sort of asked Batman, you know, what's going on between you and Zatanna? You are same time every year, you guys take off. Is there something I should know? And of course, you know, Batman's not exactly the romantic type, so it's probably not that. And it isn't, but, but clearly there's a relationship there. And Zatanna, you know, she talks about it here that there's tension between them that, you know, at one time they, they could have maybe, Maybe they could have been closer, but for this fact that the, every year they got to keep this malevolency at bay, and it ends up that this malevolency that somehow there's there's an there's another force that maybe knew what Batman and Zatanna were doing every year in sort of going back to this particular spot and having to close this gap, and this super sorceress named Celeste uh, utilizes what Batman and Zatanna are doing to witness and to give rise to the birth of this character called Eos. Uh, who sort of eats souls and he eats animals and like you said he ate a ate a puppy that, or yeah ate a puppy or or seemed to suck the soul out of the puppy if he didn't eat it very very disturbing and we there's four more parts to this story and I'm like you know, it's like 
boy, what, what more of a story is there to tell? But I, what I do hope that what Vida Ayala does, and she's done it very well in these two opening chapters of this six issue, six chapter story, is that she's getting us some, some good character moments between Zatanna and Batman. And I, I quite like it. And because, you know, Zatanna and Batman, I think in many ways they have a lot in common. Uh, you know, Zatanna's some, somewhat closed off and so is, so is Bruce. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah. And, and it's, it's just weird when you think about it because, you know, both of these have established love interests elsewhere. Of course, Bruce has Selena and Zatanna's got John Constantine. And so they got, they got both have in many ways, <laughs> they, they attract dysfunctional people. And I think, <laughs> and I guess maybe they're both dysfunctional themselves, but, uh, in any event, I quite, en- I quite enjoy it. And, uh, as for Vira Ayala, I think they did a very good job in these opening two chapters. Yep. Agreed. Uh, second story is white witch in stigma part two of three from Ram V a nod RK on art. I'm not a big fan of the art. It's, it's painted It's watercolor. Just, just a personal preference. What's interesting is in contrast to the first story, which has four parts left, this only has one part left, and I feel like we haven't gotten anywhere yet. Um, <laughs> we see the White Witch here, and uh, you know we learn a little more about the, the setup. Basically, you know, we, she's a clone, and she's been cloned many times. Anytime she has memories or uh, she has knowledge that um, Simon Saint and her handlers don't want her to have, they just kill her and start over with the blank slate. Um, this doctor that she's working with a psychiatrist clearly feels for her and, and wants her to have knowledge and agency of her, her own life and is trying to, to help her out. And when Simon Saint finds out, well, he does what he's always going to do. He pulls the trigger and blows her brains out. So how she might possibly come out of this, no idea. And the fact that there's only one uh, part of the story left to figure it out. Uh, I mean, I, I find the white witch to be a really interesting character this isn't a straightforward narrative where we're, I feel like we're getting a lot about her. I mean, this story, it feels like she's a plot device in this, in this story more than anything, you know, we're not actually learning about her and who she is, what her personality is. And that's what I was hoping for. So couple that with art. That's not really um, my cup of tea. And uh, this one's not really working for me. What are your thoughts, Rocky? Well, I think this works on some levels, because uh, we're finally, you really get a sense of what Ram V, the writer Ram V, wanted to incorporate. Had he had more time in 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 the pages of Catwoman, I'm, I'm saying to myself, "Oh, what could have been?" I I, I get the strong feeling that Ram V's, uh, maybe he would have incorporated this in his Catwoman run because this is uh, this is actually uh, I of all the uh, we got we got a number of different. Uh, we, we we got uh like the gardener we got we got uh we got batman uh we got a, individual one shots of the gardener and of uh peacekeeper i i would have liked a one shot on white witch cuz i think she's i think she's i think she's interesting the the whole idea here is that she's basically uh she's this is a flashback of really the white witch being questioned she's the product of experiments of some kind and there's different generations of her, and she's basically a soldier. And Simon Saint experimented on on different versions of her, and the the therapist here actually befriends one of her in, 
one of her iterations, one of her, I guess you could say almost like a clone, a clone, because uh, there's there's multiple copies, I guess, of Re for each generation. And one and the idea here is to get Re to remember what's going on because the the copy is killed because each each copy is killed because it has too many memories and Simon Saint doesn't like memories because as Simon Saint says memories can be dangerous they must be controlled and he doesn't like creating a soldier that can remember everything about their actual lives because the memories if you if you think if you if you're thinking of a past life and you've got memories then we're going to lose control he the purpose of Simon Saint, remember, with the magistrate program, he wanted to create the perfect soldier whose sole purpose was to do what they were told. That you you do what you're told and your life is what I, the magistrate, tell you to do. Simon Saint wanted to create a soldier that has perfectly control over. And you can't have that if the soldier can create their own memories. The only thing that should be in the soldier's head is what I put there. That's what Simon Saint was doing. And so this, this white witch program is part of that. And the psychologist here does something very interesting, the therapist with with Re. Re remembers being in love with Ghostmaker. And that's the connection to Ghostmaker. And I think that's fascinating because at one point in the past, both both the White Witch, both Re and Ghostmaker were in love. And and in order to remember that, the, the psychologist tells Re to remember the book Soldier in the Mist. And um and the idea is to associate she tells her, associate new experiences with old memories so you do not forget. And, and it's, it's, it's very well done here. What Ram V does, re, re struggles to remember. And she thinks, was I in love with a ghost? <laughs> Why was I, you know, did I fall in love with a ghost? You know, and she, and, and it's, you can tell she's sort of struggling to remember. And, uh, but of course, she gets the slate gets keeps getting wiped clean in her head, and she's always killed. And the idea is, each time you retire one memory, uh, new memories are are lost, but the old ones survive. And so that's what she's struggling to do. So I think, even though this is only three, this is going to be three chapters long, I think it's going to establish. Ramvi's done a good job of establishing that Re is in many ways. It, it Re almost reminds me; she's almost a little bit like a quasi Electra. Because uh, there, when Electra came back from the dead, her memories weren't quite there. So this re character reminds me a little bit of like Electra being resurrected by the hand. If, for those of you who are into the Marvel comics, and so I, I kind of like this a little bit of Electra Nachos. If I said her last name right, I was butcher it. Her the Electra vibes. And anyways, I enjoy this. I like the look of White Witch. And I think this is an intriguing uh, origin for her. And so I'm looking forward to see how this third, uh, the next chapter wraps it up. Yeah, next up we have The Eternity in Gotham Story, written by Mohail Moshigo, illustrated by Ar Arist Dan. I think that's how you pronounce it, D-E-Y-N. Lettered by Seda Temafonte. Uh, I'm enjoying this, uh, having Eternity. I, I talked about having uh, Kid Eternity in Gotham as a supporting cast member, I think it would be interesting, you know, have him as the, the corner. Um, so it's clear that this story will involve some, some twists and some turns and people not being who you, who we think they are. But what I love is how much it focuses on who kid eternity is and just through the context of the story, the dialogue, his reaction to the events, it gives such an insight into who he is as a character. So, so kind of a lot of the things that we're not getting in that white witch story because she barely says a word and, and she's not really doing much of anything. Things are happening to her rather than her moving through the story. This is the exact opposite. 
this is clearly focused on Kid Eternity and just through his uh, interactions with other people in the story and, and the choices he makes, you get such a very quickly, such an, uh, a great handle on who he is as a, as a character. So I'm a fan. Uh, I would definitely be interested in reading a, a regular monthly by the same creative team with uh, with Kid Eternity. I think the art's fantastic, including the the color work, which Aristian must do both because it's just as illustrated by there's no color artist listed. So uh, detailed art, really uh, interesting use of, of camera angles. So often the camera's tilted, it zooms in, zooms out, because uh, it, it, it is in a lot of ways uh, sort of a talking head story. You know, it's a little bit of a murder mystery. There's not that much action. So you need to keep keep it visually interesting, and they, they do an incredible job of, of that by moving the camera around and uh, zooming in and out and giving us different angles uh, and different perspectives. So I think this is fantastic. What do you think, Rock? Uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with the artist. Uh, Aris Dan? Dayon? Yeah, I'm not not either. First uh, thing I've ever seen but, them do. But I'm impressed. I like it. I, I, I like the subtle the, – the coloring is, is really nice, especially – it, it does a really effective job conveying the, the sort of like the afterlife because, you know, uh, Kid Eternity is talking to essentially a ghost and it really comes off well. You you really do get a, a feel. It's a, it's obvious that he's talking to somebody who's dead and he's talking to a spirit. It comes off very well. And uh, yeah, it's, it's quite effective. It, it works quite well. It's... Kid Eternity, the, the idea of a detective, somebody working for a morgue who also can see dead people that's we that's sort of a that's been done more than once uh in comics i, I forget but what, what was the series it was even a tv series. I zombie yeah i zombie yeah so uh, you know it's it's you know but hey uh, i agree with you this could be an this could be a comic book i mean look dc you got too much batman give us a kid eternity comic why not i think that it's got potential why go why have i zombie give us kid eternity for god's sakes why did they go to iZombie to begin with? They, you know, if you had yeah. Kid Eternity, but in any event, I think it's a fa- I think it's well done. Uh, again, and the writer Mohail Mashigo. I'm not familiar with. Uh, I, I'm not even is Mohail. Is that a male? Is that a man or a woman? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, he or she is is you know it's good. There's, I'm assuming that's I'm assuming that's maybe new new talent that DC is coming on board, but. This is uh this is well paced, well structured. I'm interested. Uh, Kid Eternity seems to be an intelligent young man. Uh, it's I'm I'm interested. I think the story's a little bit predictable. I mean, I sort of guessed right at the front who the bad person might end up being, and it, it appears to be the case. So I don't think I, I suspect that this ending might be somewhat tropey and predictable. But uh, you know, uh, beyond that though, I mean, it's. It's it's what it's again well paced, beautifully drawn, and it's effective. It does you know it's it's a good story. Mahel Mashigo is a South African award-winning singer, songwriter, novelist, uh, and radio former radio presenter. So, oh, uh, female, yeah, and obviously multi-talented. Multi so, yeah. yeah uh, all right, last story: uh, the Hounded Part Two of Six, The Furnace. Mark Russell's the writer. Carl Mostert on art. Trish Mulvihill on colors, Steve Wands on letters. Now, the first part of this story was my favorite of of the issue. Th- this issue, I think, my favorite is actually the Kid Eternity story, um, because I the second part from Mark Russell it focuses on the the villains of the piece. Uh, this uh, this horrible horrible person who uh, Mr. Schwan, Herbert Schwan, who is running this uh, this 
pet cemetery like front, but really what he does with the, the pets is instead of even burying them in the ground, he just burns them in the furnace, which is where the name of the story comes from. But really what he's doing is he's take he's finding all these animals, he's taking in all these animals and he's running these horrific experiments on them. He cuts the leg off a chicken and then teaches it to play chess. <laughs> uh, he, he somehow makes a turtle run really fast. Um, he trained a dog for Lex Luthor that, that's like supposedly the perfect mate for Luthor, but then turns out Luthor's uh, allergic to dogs. I mean, yeah. he's just this horrible, horrible two-faced person who at the end is accepting a humanitarian award from some organization in Gotham talking about the way we treat – it's important to treat animals really well. Uh, because the way we treat animals reflects on who we are. In a way, he's exactly right. And it, the way he treats animals shows what a scumbag he is. Um, and then in the background, while he's giving this speech with the voiceover, we actually see uh, Ace the Bat Hound uh, uh, basically lead a jail break at the uh, at the facility where the that aforementioned turtle and chicken along with a, a pickpocketing squirrel and this... Uh, large grizzly bear i think it's supposed to be uh, a large brown bear of some sort uh they all escape uh and and ace the bat hound is the one that that uh, that leads the that leads to prison break so yeah it, it's still really good i just didn't like it as much as the first one because it, it more focuses on the herbert schwann who's a very despicable character um but the art by carl mostert is just as fantastic as his, and detailed as his art usually is so uh, i'm definitely in for uh for more of this story I know you're a fan of the first part too, Rocky. What do you think? Yeah, I, I actually am. Uh, I, I am a fan of the first part. Uh, I will disagree with you because I think I enjoyed this even more than the first part. I'm, I'm mm. the opposite of you. I, and and what what wonderful for me is I I, I echo your comments about the scumbag uh, Herbert Schwann, but uh, he's a bad guy, and it's good. You need a good bad guy, so he's a jerk, and uh, you, you know it's it's ironic that he's when Herbert Schwann is he's given that award for being an outstanding citizen. And he, he says the ironic words, how we treat animals is how we would treat each other in secret if there were no consequences. And of course he treats animals terribly. And so there, there, there's a theme here. And, you know, Mark Russell, you know, does, uh, you know, he's Mark Russell's always good about the parody and about making some type of social commentary here. And boy, he sure makes it with, with, with that type of idea. It's, it's very true that, you know, what we do in secret and how we treat maybe certain, <laughs> certain animals, it might say something about us. There's always that cliche that if you're a young child and you like to kill and dissect animals or, or you're killing the, 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 the robin in the tree, that you're probably going to grow up to be a disturbed adult. But in any event, I like how, I love how this, my favorite part of this issue is how it juxtaposes Batman's speech. Batman's pissed off with gritted teeth. He's telling his captors, he's telling them, you don't think I'm going to escape this? You know, every, you know, everyone's intimidated when they're imprisoned because they always, they always focus on the fact that they're caged. But every, you know, last time I checked, there's a, there's a door to every room. It's a question of finding it. And there's nothing I can't escape from. And, and as he's saying that and clearly intimidating his captors, you know, we see Ace. We see Ace do exactly what Batman is doing. He's escaping. Ace, the hound, the bat hound, has, has the same attitude as Batman. You can tell this is Batman's dog. <laughs> That's what I love about it. And then Ace doesn't, I mean, I mean, this is, this is a Batman story, but it really, this is like, uh, 
this is really, this truly is, this is the hound. This is Ace's story. And Ace is just kicking ass. I'm like, I'm cheering for this dog here. And he, and he, he basically leads the crew. I mean, Ace has his family here and the way he frees the chick. I mean, good Lord. I mean, <laughs> explain this to someone. Yeah. Ace the hound frees the, frees the chicken and frees the, you know, frees the, the, the speedy turtle and then the bear. Uh, I mean, this is, uh, <laughs> this is, this is fun. This was really enjoyable. I I honestly would not have thought that I would have enjoyed this as much as I did. But, you know, a lot of this, there's not a lot. Obviously, we're dealing with animals, so there's no dialogue. But uh, kudos to uh, Carl, Carl Mostert on, on the art, the artist here. Does a fantastic job drawing these animals. And it's one thing to draw human beings with facial expressions and conveying action and, and, and moving a story. But he does, he draws animals here and we don't even need the sound effects. There's, there's sound effects in all the panels, but we don't even need them to know what these animals are doing and they're escaping and they're doing a bang up job. And it's, you have a smile on your face as you're reading this because it's entertaining as hell. And, and of course they take out the bad guys. And not only that, I believe this. I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm staring at a freaking mechanical, a chicken with mechanical legs, for Christ's sake, and I'm being entertained. <laughs> I, you know, again, shit eating green on my face, and whenever I have that, you know, hey, what's not to like? And and because I'm not really a big fan of One Star Squadron, also written by Mark Russell, I'm 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 glad because I generally like Mark Russell's uh, uh, stories. I'm not enjoying One Star Squadron, but he's making up for it with this Ace uh, the Hound here. I'm really enjoying this story. Yeah, it was uh, it was good. Uh, okay, up next we have uh, Superman, Son of Kal-El, The Rising Part 2, script by Tom Taylor, pencils by Cian Torme, inks by Raul Fernandez, colors by Federico Blee, letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, I'm really liking this, uh, this Superman, Son of Kal-El. You know, uh, obviously the whole idea of John Kent being aged up and being called Superman already, we've talked about ad nauseum, so I won't get into that aspect. Uh, but just the characterization, uh, Tom Taylor's doing is doing a good job of uh, continuing to evolve John as a as a character. Do I do I feel like we missed out on years of development? Yes, I do. We, we've sort of skipped to you know forward, but you know that is what it is. That wasn't Tom Taylor's choice. He's doing the best he can with uh, with who John is now, and I, I like the empathy and the emotion that he brings to John. The other thing he does in a really fantastic way in this issue is. Uh, you want to talk about despicable characters. Um, Henry Bendix is, is just awful. You know, if, if there's anything that's kind of disturbing and annoying or frustrating about this book is how it sort of re reflects re reality in that Lex Luthor and, and Bendix have manipulated events here to make it seem like John Kent made the wrong choice. You know, he didn't just go in there and kill this giant creature who, by the way, did nothing wrong. This creature would have kept hibernating who knows for how many more hundreds of years if it wasn't for the fact that humans have deoxygenated the ocean and the thing was basically suffocating and that's what woke it up and it was heading toward metropolis and they these villains have manipulated events to say well john kent you're superman you could have just killed it and taken it away and prevented it from damaging the city now we know that john kent and jackson hyde were already moving the behemoth away from the city uh and if it wouldn't have been for bendix's you know, automatons or, or uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, these metahumans, posthumans, whatever he calls them, uh, that he ordered to go in there and basically provoke the behemoth to attack. But people don't know that. People don't hear that story. 
all they hear is the the uh, the narrative from uh, Lex Luthor and from Bendix that you know this is all the deaths, all the destru- destruction. It's all on on the uh, they lay it all at the feet of John Kent, and he's talking about how uh, all these you can't trust these heroes and uh, what nations need is these armies of post-humans that they control themselves and man the last thing i would want if if they if they really were superhumans would be for governments of the world to control them like they they do not and, and you know I'm, I'm speaking in reality here it seems less and less every day as years go by the governments have anything but their own interest in just perpetuating themselves and keeping power in the hands of the very few they're much more interested in that than actually pr- pr- uh, protecting the average person. So it, it's really frustrating to see, unfortunately, that reality played out here in, in the comic. And I don't mean it's frustrating in, in terms of I don't want to see it. Um, I just mean it's it it's frustrating that these are the stories and these are the conversations that, that we're having to have that fiction is reflecting as yeah. Tom Taylor uh, pulls in, you know, real life uh themes here and ideas uh it's just frustrating right like Mm -hmm. we should be we as a species we as a society need to be better than this we like we we need people that are more educated and can think more critically and realize that what bendix is saying here is so completely backwards and and not the way that you want to that you want to do things like he's playing the hero he but we know that he's not. We know that he's manipulated events and he's actually the cause of all of this. Um, it, it's just, it's so fascist in a way. Um, and, and again, it makes for good storytelling and, and compelling storytelling. Um, so we'll see where it goes from here. Uh, the artwork from C and Torme, uh, it's interesting, you know, as much as I, I kind of struggled a little bit with the John Tim's art at first on, um, on the Superman version of, uh, of John Kent, it felt overly rendered, um, you know, overly detailed, especially in the Future State issues. And now that C and Torme's on it, I kind of uh, miss the John Timms art. Uh, not that Torme's art is bad at all. Uh, I just feel like the Timms art, uh, fe- it felt a little more kinetic. It was a little softer, uh, less angular. And so it felt like it flowed a little bit better. Uh, Torme's art maybe hits with a little more impact, but he definitely has a more angular style. So it's just a personal preference for me. Um, but, and it might be that Torme kind of adjusts his style as uh, it goes along here. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, the, uh, the colors from Federico Blee are fantastic though, as always. So uh, overall, pretty solid issue. what do you think, Rocky? Well, I, I share your, your sentiment because we're, this is a topic where, uh, because we know that the, this the Superman son of Kalal is a title that, it's ruffled some feathers because Tom Taylor is sort of, he's sort of uh, carefully weaving a story here that is, at, like you basically stated, it's, it's touching upon some hotbed topics. Uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, let's be blunt here. John Kent has joined an organization called The Truth. And their job is obviously they know the truth. They must be the good guys because John Kent is an organize is is a member of an organization of, I guess, glorified protesters that work. They're not associated with any government, but they're called the Truth. And his secret identity is to wear a mask and to work for the Truth. And and of course, the people that are spreading lies is the government. The government is spreading lies. The government of Gamora, working in conjunction with Lex Luthor, 
And you can very easily see the analogies to our real world politics and our real world, you know, fake news. And that is absolutely, we know it's going to ruffle some feathers. And now I, now, now the story itself that Tom Taylor is weaving, I, I kind of, I, I think, I don't know if it's really working for me. I, I, I'm, a, I've got some concerns about it. I'm not sure. I, I can't imagine that they would, that, that, that the people of Metropolis can't see through the nonsense of Henry Bendix. It's obviously, to me, it's obvious that super, that Superman John Kent has won the day here. Is that he's, he means well. He's, he had Aquaman with him, and so this, this whole plot point of the rising of, of creating. Su- of creating superhumans to be controlled by the government. You can trust the government to tell superhumans what to do about. So treat the superhumans. Superhumans are bad unless they're controlled by the government. And unless the government creates like this is Bendix's, this is Tom Taylor's plot point. Tom Taylor thinks that this is what like this. I, I think this is a, I think leaving aside the political potential that the suggestion of this being too reflective of the real world, I just don't like this plot point. If this is what the rising is, I'm not interested in this plot point. And that's what that's my biggest concern about it. And I really don't like the secret identity of John Kent suddenly throwing on a mask. And it's it completely flips the secret identity thing around. He's going to wear a mask to be he's to 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 do all this uh as opposed to the the whole Clark Kent thing, but anyways, um uh yeah, I've I'm I'm losing interest in this title. I'm not in the, in this storyline as quick as I can uh uh as quick as I can uh as you know, as quick as I can. So, in any event, uh Yeah, okay. I mean, I I think it's it is the idea of him having a secret identity. I think he's still going to be Superman. I think he's just planning on doing things in a civilian identity with the truth maybe out of costume. We did see him try to have a secret identity early on when he was tried to go to school. So I don't know. I, I'm 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 willing to give Taylor a, a chance. We'll see. We'll see what happens. So uh, okay. Up next we have the Strange Love Adventures, uh, which has quite a few <laughs> quite a few stories here. Uh, it's the Valentine special. So I'm going to read off the uh, credits real quick. We have a Harley Quinn story, Lightning in a Bottle, by Stephanie Phillips. She's the writer. John Samariva is the artist. Rex Locus on colors. Pat Broso on letters. The Flash and Gorilla Grodd in the Grodd Couple. Rich Duick is the writer. Scott Eaton on pencils. Wayne Fokker on inks. Hi-Fi on colors. Seda Temafonte on letters. Peacemaker in Love of Country. Writer Rex Ogle. Geraldo Borges is the artist. Nick Filardi on colors. Farron Delgado on letters. Blue Beetle in Ritual of Love with Andrew Marino writing. Pablo M. Collar art. D. Cuniff Colors, Josh Reed on letters. Shazam and Superman in the Name of Love, written by Chi Grayson. John Mickle is the artist. Nick Filardi on colors. Carlos M. Mangual on letters. Alfred in Service by Devin Grayson, which is always great to see Devin Grayson come back to DC. She's the writer. Roger Robinson on art. Tony Avina on colors. Pat Broso on letters. Sergeant Rock, uh, which is probably my favorite story in the book, uh, in Romance on Dinosaur Island, written by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. Christian Ducey is the artist. Enrica Aaron Angiolini does the colors. Steve Wan's letters. And then Batman in Dinner for Two, which that was also a really good story. Uh, Ram V is the writer. Phil Hester on pencils. Eric Gapster and Andre Parks on inks. D. Cunniff on colors. And Cleb Robbins on letters. 
Uh, now, I have to run real fast and go pick up my daughter, so I'm going to let Rocky uh, go through these, and I will be back as soon as I can. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, the first story here is uh, Harley Quinn in Lightning in a Bottle. Now, this is uh, writer Stephanie Phillips here. I actually enjoyed this. I enjoyed this particular story. Uh, I enjoyed this more than than the current storylines going on written by Stephanie Phillips in the main Harley Quinn title. And that's not a put down to Stephanie Phillips. I like Stephanie Phillips as a writer, writer, generally speaking. I just, I just like the subject matter of this lightning in a bottle. And it's a perfect title because number one, it deals with Valentine's, uh, you know, Valentine's day and it's lightning in a bottle because Shazam and black Adam star in this. And it starts off with uh, Harley Quinn doing some graffiti, writing graffiti on the hall of justice, which is, uh, looks quite good. Again, artist uh, John Samariva on the art. John Samariva as the artist does a really good job here. Rex Locus on the coloring. It, it really pops off the page. Um, essentially, this is uh, what what I my my favorite aspect of this is uh, is is Harley Quinn. You know, Harley Quinn has uh, she has an altercation with Shazam. Uh, Captain Marvel, you know, he wants to, you know, she ends up biting his ear. He basically takes her out. He handily defeats her. I mean, she's, of course, she's put graffiti all over the Hall of Justice. Terrible. And Black Adam has this idea. Uh, Black Adam has this master plan. He, he figures, well, what the hell? Why doesn't he? He figures he's he, he's going to break Harley Quinn out of prison. So Shazam, Captain Marvel, <laughs> takes out Harley Quinn, which is quite easy for him to do. Harley Quinn ends up in prison, and of course, she's giving her her tale of woe to the people within the prison. And uh, uh, you know, there's again the dialogue here is good. I mean, at one point, uh, Harley even says, "Us, oh, you know, one of the people in jail, you know, is is basically, uh, you know, he kind of loves her." And he says, "Oh, Stevie, that's incredibly sweet that you'd commit first degree murder for me." I mean. Uh, this is, I mean, this is the type of Harley that, that it's, if you've been reading Stephanie Phillips, uh, Harley in, in the Harley Quinn comic, this really builds up, uh, builds on that. And when Black Adam breaks her out of prison, he proposes to her. And the idea is he wants to create a, a political union, a union for political reasons. He's, he's not looking for love, but a partner who might provide, uh, his people of, of conduct with the strength of a queen that they have lacked for centuries. And what I love about this issue, and this is a potential speculator alert, is that she Harley says Shazam, and we actually get Harley Quinn looking hot. I mean, cosplayer alert. I'm looking forward to see the first cosplayer who wears, you know, like Captain Marvel or Captain Harley Marvel. What do you call What do you call this character? I mean, it's Captain Harley Marvel or Harley Marvel. Is that what her name is? Harley Marvel. Not really given a name here, but she looks amazing in this outfit. And and basically, when she becomes, when she gets an aspect of Black Adam's power, she uses it to to to, to attack and to get even a little bit with uh, Shazam by firing a lightning bolt on him. And as she's uh, and as she's doing that. As she's doing that, Black Adam beats up on Shazam, but then she gets a phone call from the Joker, and the Joker wants to get back together with Harley, and, uh, you know, she's so excited, but she just accepted the marriage proposal from Black Adam, but she, of course, she loves, she loves, uh, she loves the Joker, and so, uh, in any event, that's the, um, uh, 
that's the story uh, now, but it, it's got a great ending. Now I just want to. Oh, <laughs> so, anyways, it it ends up that this is a story that that Harley is telling to Ivy, and uh, uh, and what I like about it, it, it ends with Poison Ivy kissing Harley, asking you know her if she still has the Shazam costume which is really sexy because we all, like I said, as a, who doesn't love good cosplay? I'm looking forward to anybody out there that, any woman out there that wants to show off a Harley Quinn Shazam Captain Marvel costume, by all means, the, I mean, it's, it's beautifully, I mean, it it looks gorgeous. Anyways, that's the story with Harley. It's, uh, it's my second favorite because I just love that outfit, Harley in a Captain Marvel outfit. The first one is going to be the Sergeant Rock one. The uh, the next the, the next story here dealing with Flash, uh, Gorilla Grodd wants uh, romance lessons from Wally West. Wally West and Linda. Gorilla Grodd knows that Wally West loves Linda and uh, the Grodd couple. And this is uh, the writer is Rich Duick, uh, the, uh and the penciler is Scott Eaton. Uh, Wayne Foucher is the inker and Hi Fi is the colorist. Sarah uh, uh, Temafonte is the letterer. Andrew Marino the editor, but. This, this is a lot of fun. Uh, basically, Gorilla Grodd wants to woo a woman he, or a woo a female gorilla. And he wants advice from from Wally and Linda. And, and what better people, you know, there, there's arch enemy, but he also knows that his arch enemy knows how to make a relationship work. Because if Wally West can make a relationship work, then so can Gorilla Grodd. And Gorilla Grodd's uh, love interest is Primat. Her name is Primat, and she is magnificent. They've got so much in common. She was exiled by the close-minded simpletons of Gorilla City, and uh, while he was shunned for his obvious superiority, um, uh, he has. Um, they they share uh, an obsession with human romance novels, and um, and uh, or rather, Primat has an obsession with human romance novels, a subject that even uh, a great as intellect as as uh, Gorilla Grodd. Gorilla Grodd knows nothing about romance and he wants to learn something so he can woo her. And essentially, I mean, it's good. They end up at this fancy restaurant and, you know, <laughs> again, it's, it's, it's nuts. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's, you'll enjoy it. I mean, it's, it's actually a perfect character when you think about it. At one point, they run out of lobster and Gorilla Grodd's getting upset. So Wally West uses his super speed, goes, gets a bunch of lobster, comes back, saves the night. And so Gorilla Grodd and Primat can have their romantic moment together. And, of course, Wally and Linda have their romantic moment as well. And that's really how it ends. And, yeah, it's, 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 it's a nice story. Uh, roses are red, violets are blue. You're the American dream. I only have eyes for you. So there you go. Uh, that is actually the lead-in to Love of Country, the peach make the the peacemaker story. Now this is written by Rex Ogle, art by Geraldo uh, uh, <laughs> Geraldo Borges, and uh, colors by Nick Filardi. Now this uh, this is actually a good one. This this peacemaker is this one's a little bit more hard ass. The I but he this peacemaker. Is he is um, he basically he takes on Firehands, Shimmer, Jinx, Brain Beam, and Mammoth, and basically he's now Peacemaker is at the beginning of the story he's 
doing a Valentine. He's making Valentines for because he loves Valentine's Day. Now you think a peacemaker. Well, who does peacemaker love? Who's he going to do a Valentine Day for? And, and that's that's the big reveal at the end of the story. But before you get to the end of the story, he's making Valentines at the beginning, and he has to go. He's got on a mission, and he's he, he does anything for peace, and his country needs him, and he's it's time to take kick butt and kick names and he does that and the all-new fearsome five and it's really funny because you wouldn't think that the peacemaker could take out the entire new fearsome five considered a, consisting of Firehands, who's a pyrokinetic shimmer who's an alchemist jinx who's a magician brain beam is a psychic and mammoth's brute force <laughs> and, uh, um well but peacemaker just brutally takes them all out and he gives them a speech you would dare threaten love and uh, I love my country, and you threaten it with violence, with act of terror terrorism, not while I breathe. And and of course, one of the, one of the telekinetics reads Peacemaker's mind and discovers that it's all that it's full of corpses. <laughs> Peacemaker says, "Love is sacrifice, and love is kind. So let me do you this kindness and help you rest in peace." I mean, again. Cliche stuff here for Peacemaker, but there's a obviously it's a comical element. You got to have fun with this. He's a violent person, and he just he wants to take them out, eliminate them because this is Valentine's Day, and how do they how dare they do this on Valentine's Day? Shimmer basically begs for her life, and of course he doesn't kill her. He just kicks her in the head, and he goes back and he completes his Valentine's Day. He has a shower. He sings in the shower. Uh, rub a dub dub. Wash away blood with a scrub. Uh, <laughs> And it ends up that he's given his Valentine's Day to Eagly the Eagle. Uh, what a name, right? Obviously, uh, you've been watching the Peacekeeper series, or pardon me, the Peacemaker series. He calls his Eagle Eagly. That's the big joke. And that's really what this is. Eagly, you're the only one for me, he says. And so it's 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 a good story. And yeah, it's one of the, one of the one I think it's entertaining. It's actually at least probably three three of the stories here were solidly good stories, which isn't always the case in these these compilations. Now, this next story here is called Ritual of Love, written by Andrew Marino, uh, artist Pablo M. Collar, uh, colorist D. Cuniff, and Josh Reed, the letterer, and it's a Blue Beetle story. And what's funny about this Blue Beetle story is Jamie, uh, uh, Jamie, of course, J Jamie uh, Rain, uh, Jamie the Blue Beetle. He's got a he's got a date uh, with a girl named Jessica, but meanwhile he gets sidetracked because this there's this Dryadian, uh, an alien from the planet of Dryadia. This Dryadian alien ends up attacking him and fighting him. Blue Beetle defeats this Dryadium. And then another Dryadium falls in love with him because he apparently, uh, it's been part of a, it's part of a mating ritual or it's, it's a, it's a, it's a Dryadian, uh, courtship ritual where because Blue Beetle defeats this Dryadian, this female Dryadian loves Blue Beetle. And of course, the problem then is that Blue Beetle then has to find a way to get out of this because he doesn't want to have to go back to the, this Dryadian's planet and obviously <laughs> mate with this rock-like creature. Can't imagine that's going to be a pleasant experience. <laughs> this is normally the sort of adventure you'd expect Blue Beetle and, and Booster Gold to get involved in or to end up being screwed up with. But in any event, it's actually quite comical. 
And it's, again, it's, it's a lot of fun. And so Blue Beetle has this, uh, Jamie has this master plan that he's got to somehow, he's got to go back and he has to refight. He has this master plan of refighting and losing the fight on purpose so that this other Dryadian is actually the victor. And so these two Dryadians can get together and he's got to do that quick enough so he can get back in time and, and not miss his own date with Jessica because... Uh, he's, he's going, he's going, he's taking her to a movie called The Wedding Singer. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And he, he manages to get to Jessica and uh, he does, he also manages to get her some flowers at the end. So it's got a happy ending all around and it's, it's, it's fun. It's fun. What, what can I say? I mean, it's, 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 it's worth, uh, it's worth uh, a read. Now, this next one, um, this next story is uh involves Billy Batson having a crush on a woman and I didn't really pay much attention I you know it's it's uh Shay Grayson is the writer John McKellar is on the art it's in the name of love it's Billy Batson uh he's got uh you know he's 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 got a crush on a girl and it's actually her last name is McDuffie and it's the McDuffie residence, and that's kind of nice. I think that's a tribute to Dwayne uh, McDuffie, the um, the uh, well, the famous writer of the and harbinger of the uh, and forerunner of the uh, milestone universe in the DC universe. And in any event, Superman's in this, and he gives Billy Batson some advice on basically how to be a nice guy, how to get the girl, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end, he. He does manage to get uh, get a necklace for uh, for his uh, woman uh, for the girl that he has a crush on because uh, her his her mom's wedding was ruined uh, and I'm not even sure why I forget what I forget what it was by some bullies or whatever but in any event I I sort of skim read it uh, this was but it's it's not bad uh, I thought this was. Um, you know, again, this was, I, it didn't need Clark Kent in it, but it was sort of nice to see Clark Kent and Billy Batson, maybe, uh, you know, because they're both sort of like the mild-mannered stereotype and that dichotomy between the super-powered individual and the mild-mannered counterpart. So having Clark Kent give advice to Billy Batson was kind of interesting uh, because you, you know, maybe at some point we'll see that in a movie, right? Will we ever see that in an actual DC movie? I doubt it, but be kind of nice to see. The art here is actually pretty good. Uh, I want to give a shout out again to the artist. Uh, who is the artist? The artist is... Oh. The uh, artist on the Superman and Shazam is John Mickle. Ah, uh, John Nickel, yes. Yeah, I just... Um, I, I, I don't mind the art. Uh little bit uh you know predictable uh as a story but i didn't mind it but i gotta tell you the quality of the stories through most of this i enjoyed most of the stories here this one was actually th these were all decent i i didn't mind any of these stories really they were all they all sort of put a smile on my face and this one was okay but and i mean this as no disrespect to it but this was probably my least favorite uh even though but it was still pretty decent and so i enjoyed it so I uh, I didn't want to steal all your thunder there. It's good to have you back, Jace. Um, do you yeah. want to? Uh, uh, I haven't. I think the next story is is the one by uh, it's called Service by Devin 
Devin Grayson and the Sergeant Rock story is is last. You want? You have any comment about the previous stories? I there's the Blue Beetle uh, story and the Peacemaker. Yeah, I mean, I the Harley Quinn one was was kind of funny because I, I sort of agreed with um, with Shazam in the story itself. <laughs> you know, like wait, what are, what are you doing? You're 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 going you're hanging out with with Black Adam. You, like eh, that it didn't really seem to to play. Or I I said Shazam. I agree with with uh with with pam with with uh with poison ivy where she she wasn't really buying it yeah. seemed a little far-fetched but the whole story it was fun and it you know it, it, it did put a smile on my face but the entire story is worth it just for seeing a harley quinn version of the black adam costume <laughs> that's what i said yeah you betcha oh my god it's so good that that is so like i yeah. i i'm not again and i'm not a big harley fan but john samariva i mean if he was the one that designed that like DC, don't miss out on the opportunity to make a statue or an action figure or something because that thing would sell like hotcakes, man. I, mean, I, I said cosplay. I said cosplayer alert, man. Oh, yeah. I want some sexy yeah. women cosplayers to, to design that outfit. Yeah, and again, I I, I would never under norm, a normal circumstance buy a Harley Quinn like action figure or anything like that, but I would buy that one. That That's how cool it is. <laughs> that's uh, the, the, yeah, the second story was a lot of fun. Pro- probably the, the best uh, art in the book by Scott Eaton with Gorilla Grodd and I don't know, it was just kind of ludicrous him going on a double date with Flash and Iris. So that was fun. Um, the Peacemaker one, so subversive in terms of, uh, you know, it's, this is a Valentine's issue. So it's all about love. <laughs> what does Peacemaker love? Well, he loves peace and he loves his country. And at the end of the day, he loves a, a bald eagle. So that was, that was fun. Uh, the Blue Beetle, that was probably my least favorite. While fun, it, it, it didn't feel like it was, it, it didn't feel memorable at all. It's not a story I'll, I'll probably remember, you know, next week. Uh, the Shazam uh, Superman team up one, like you said, was 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 a lot of fun. Just seeing Clark Kent as as a wingman was uh, was a heck of a lot of fun. So that was interesting. Uh, the Alfred one that we're up to now, much like the um, the Peacemaker story, it, it's a story of love, but in a, it's not necessarily romantic love, right? It's all about as uh, as the name of the story implies uh, from Devin Grayson, it's about service and how uh, Alfred Pennyworth has given his life in service to the Wayne family. And that doesn't mean that he's a servant. Um, and it's interesting to hear his perspective. And it really reminded me, uh, and it goes hand in hand with what I was saying when we were talking about the Pennyworth title and how I feel like, I really do feel it's important for DC comics to have Alfred in the, the Batman corner of the DC universe, because he brings a lot to it. And it's summed up incredibly well in this story by Devin Grayson, right? Like the options that, that you have here, if you're going to live a life of service, you, you either have to possess a bone deep acceptance of social hierarchy or wholeheartedly endorse the intention of living in your employees reality, or as Alfred does, you can simply love, right? You you are uh, living a life of service. You're in service to the Wayne family because you you love Bruce Wayne. You love Thomas and Martha Wayne. You love their son, Bruce Wayne, and the legacy that he has created while not having any biological children of his own other than Damien. They're called the Bat family for a reason because they really are his family. You know, he may not be blood related to, you know, Dick Grayson or Barbara Gordon or whomever, but they really are an extension of the Wayne family. And be, and because of that, Alfred loves them, you know, 
probably just as much as he loves Bruce. Uh, so while not a romantic love, uh, it still fits in with the theme of love and uh, like a, just a wonderful tribute and a wonderful examination of, of who Alfred is and his integrity. And man, I, I, I don't think that, and maybe I, I should give kudos to, uh, to DC editorial and Dan Didio for, you know, ultimately making the decision because Tom King, if for those listeners who aren't aware, Tom King was going to do a fake out and Alfred wasn't really going to be dead uh, in that Batman issue. And then Dan Didio was like, no, maybe we should, we, we should really kill him. And maybe it was an, uh, um, you know, one of those instances of Dan knowing that absence makes the heart grow fonder. I didn't realize how much I really loved Alfred as a character until he's kind of not around. Um, and, and we have had a little bit of him in the Pennyworth and he's, he's shown up in some other like anthology stories like this one, but God, he, he really needs to be, he, he's such an important part of the, the bat family. So, uh, I thought this, this was, was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I, 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 I share your sentiment. It was, it was good. I, for some reason I, um, it, it felt, uh, I don't know. I, I I felt it was a little bit uh, kind of predictable. I and no. I, I guess um, I guess I've just uh, I, I agree with you that you know absence makes the heart grow fonder. And our even though Alfred's been gone, strangely enough, I don't know if I've necessarily feel like he's gone because he he he's always showing up. He's shown up a lot in Robin, and it's funny. Like it's like. Nobody wants Alfred to be gone. Like every whenever a writer gets a chance, you know, let's let's do a let's do a, an Alfred. Let's put Alfred in here, put Alfred in there, and and this idea for a Valentine's Day special to have a story about service starring Alfred, and obviously it's all about love to Alfred, his love of Bruce Wayne, his love of the Waynes, his commitment and passion to the Waynes. It's got far more to do. It's far more than simply service. It's uh, that's just the name of the story. But it, he clearly has a, he's got a, he's got a passion for the Waynes and, and a love for them that that shines through. And and it's good to see uh, Devin K. Grayson. It's been a while since she's written for DC. I think so. I, I I can't remember the last time. I mean, I remember Devin K. Grayson for the infamous issue ninety three of Nightwing back in the day. So I don't know if she's making a comeback. I know Mark Wade is writing World's Finest, and now Devin K. Grayson's back as well. So it's nice to see Devin K. Grayson back. I'd like to see her write some stories, some more stories for DC instead of just in these types of compilations. Yep, exactly. Uh, next up, the romance on Dinosaur Island, Jackson Lansing, Colin Kelly, writers, Christian Doucet art. This is probably my favorite art and my favorite story in the book. Uh, the art is, is, you know, it's Dinosaur Island, so you get some really cool velociraptors and, uh, and jungle and some really great detail. Zooming in on Sergeant Rock's eyes and, and his bandolier and his equipment and, and all that. The story itself is told from like a journal that uh that sergeant rock is keeping while on the island and basically at one point he is about to be uh, attacked by this uh, velociraptor when another velociraptor comes along and it's sort of love at first sight and and through the relationship of these velociraptors as it kind of grows and uh rock even at one point protects them from other prey and saves them they they sort of become a team uh, and start even hunting together at one point, the three of them started rocking these two velociraptors. And so uh, I just thought it was really, really well done, really well paced from Lansing and Kelly, like perfectly suited for the length of the story. 
and just really, really fun. I mean, you, you wouldn't normally think you could get Sergeant Rock in a Valentine story, uh, and he's certainly not the one having the romantic relationship, but I don't know, like two dinosaurs falling in love, like what could be more dinosaur out of than that? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I love the ending too, where he, you know, uh, not only does Sergeant Rock show compassion toward dinosaurs of all things that are dinosaurs in love, uh, but, uh, you know, because he, he crash lands on the island along with, because uh, he shot down, it, he's basically shot down and he lands and he ends up on the island along with a Japanese soldier. Uh, so I'm assuming that this dinosaur island is somewhere in the Pacific. Uh, because there's a, his counterpart, his enemy, a Japanese soldier, is injured and he comes across the injured soldier and he could kill him. He could leave the soldier to die. But, I mean, Sergeant Rock then looks to these dinosaurs and if these two dinosaurs, I mean, they're in love. And so it's like, it's like you know, he, he, so he saves the guy and he, 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 you know, so he asks for, obviously, he requests an evac uh, plus one. So he saves the soldier of, he saves this Japanese soldier. So it's really nice. I also want to say something that I really, really love Christian Doucet's art. It's fantastic. And I, I got a confession here that I've always loved Sergeant Rock. I got a, I got a, a sizable Sergeant Rock collection. But I have to admit, one of the things that always frustrated me about Sergeant Rock stories is that Joe Kubert, Joe Kubert, uh, I don't, you know, I got, I wish that more people would, would they would, I always wish DC would let more people draw uh, Sergeant Rock than just Joe Kubert. And, uh, and again, I, Joe Kubert, he's the classic artist, but I'm, I'm so glad that I would love, love, love to have a Sergeant Rock comic book. I would love to have that. And I think the time has come, quite frankly. Uh, that's me. That's a, obviously a bias that I have. I just love Sergeant Rock. Uh, we saw Sergeant Rock a little bit in Death Metal. And uh, unfortunately, he was, you know, he was in pretty bad shape in Death Metal, him being dead and all. Yeah. Uh, but I would have loved, I would love to see a Sergeant Rock title. And I would love if uh, Christian Doucet was the, the, the artist drawing it. Because I really, really love this. I love Dinosaur Island. There's a little bit of a continuity glitch here. I didn't think you, you should, Dinosaur Island, I, I don't think you could just call for evac out of, off Dinosaur Island. But <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let it go. I think that it's just in a, I thought it was in a sl slightly different dimension. But maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's not. Because I, th I thought it was. Because I know Superman and, and young, young John Kent ended on. John Kent ended up on Dinosaur Island in that great Tomasi story, but I, it was great to see Sergeant Rock here because it's a nice callback to the character and su such a great story. And so, yeah, definitely one. It's it's my favorite of the of the issue. Yeah, mine as well. Uh, there is one more dinner for two. Ram V. Phil Hester on pencils. Uh, and basically, it's a Riddler story where Riddler sends Batman on this uh, on this chase to, to figure out what his riddle means, as he often does. And at the end of the day, the answer to the riddle is Riddler's lonely. Uh, it's Valentine's Day and Batman, uh, rather than being on his date uh, as Bruce Wayne on Valentine's Day, is on a rooftop with Riddler having uh, having champagne. Um, so it, it is kind of a poignant story and a good point from Ram V, you know, uh, that th this current iteration of Batman and the iteration for, of Batman that's been around for the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, uh, is more about Batman than, than Bruce Wayne, right? Um, and it's a good question by the Riddler. Uh, like what, he, he asked Batman at the end, why aren't you just about anywhere else instead of being here on this roof at a table set for the two loneliest men in Gotham, namely the Riddler and Batman? So uh, it's, it's food for thought for sure. 
anything to add about that last story, Rock? Uh, not not really. I've uh, yeah, it, it's for some reason I thought it was, uh, you know, I it was it was actually depressing, to be honest. It was, yeah, uh, it I mean, really it was, was. It, you know, I, I the whole thing was strange love. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was. I mean, obviously, it's a Valentine's Day story. I get it. But I thought it was out of place. I wouldn't have uh, put it. I, I thought it was too depressing for this compilation, Strange Love. I, it was my it was my least favorite out of all of them all, just, just because it was depressing. And, well, of course, Batman. Batman's always Batman's Batman. I mean, you know, I mean, why don't have a why don't have a Batman Catwoman Valentine's Day thing. I mean, maybe that's cliche or tropey, but I mean, that's kind of what I expect out of these strange love compilations. But I mean, Riddler and Batman and Riddler's lonely. I mean, Riddler's a loser. He's a supervillain. He's a he's a killer. So I I don't know. I just I, it it missed the mark for me, and I I don't know. I these these strange and odd attempts to humanize Batman. He's he's going to be drinking champagne with the Riddler on a rooftop on Valentine's Day. I just I I don't know. Uh, I find it an odd an odd story for ram v to tell to be honest but uh but phil hester's art is is he's not my cup of tea phil hester but he does a really good job on the art here so credit credit to him on that yep agreed uh okay up next we have titans united number six uh from writer kevin scott jose luis on pencils jonas trinidad on inks rex locus on colors and carlos and mangual on letters uh so th this was interesting uh, we've really been enjoying the the classic feel. The art on this has been fantastic and detailed and uh, beautiful throughout. Great storytelling, breaking the panels, page layouts, like everything you could wish for in classic comic art. And colored, not completely in a primary uh, palette, but close enough that it, it definitely has that DC feel. Love the new costume Superboy's got, his Black Zero costume. Uh, in this, we see him sort of sh uh, shake off the... Uh, mind control of Commander, which uh, is is great to see. I think we've, as DC fans and fans of Connell, we've sort of been uh, waiting for that. I know Connor Kent is is a fan favorite, and you know it's a little hard to swallow that he would be this. Uh, even though it's a little bit of a different version of a lot of these characters, it's kind of hard to see Connor Kent go up against the the who these people who are his friends and who really care about him. So to see him shake that off was was really fun. Uh, but maybe the best thing about it is at the end, we find out that the Tamarian invasion and what Commander has been doing wasn't maybe exactly what it seemed. Like perhaps she was trying to take over the Earth to unite it against uh, an even worse enemy, uh, which is the Citadel. Uh, and their annihilation fleet shows up at the end. And uh, next issue, we're teased with a final stand. So... Um, there's only one issue left, and I, I f do find the pacing a little weird. I, I kind of wish this was a 12 issue because we talked about it in the past. I think it was last issue, maybe the issue before, where uh, the Temerian fleet and Commander take over. You know, we're told that they've basically gained control of the Earth, but we didn't get to see those battles. Uh, and I felt like we missed out because, man, I want more of the Jose Luis and Rex Locus art and to, and to be able to see that. Uh, and now this we're told that, hey, things aren't what they seem. The Citadel Annihilation fleet has arrived in orbit. They're about to attack. It seems to me like we need more than just one more issue to resolve this, uh, but one more issue is what we have. So uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. I would definitely oh. think that uh, 
Kevin Scott would be a good choice to to write a ongoing Titan, Titans monthly, but I don't know. Uh, well, I guess we'll see. Th- this is by far the, the the best art of any comic of DC that came out uh, in, in in a long time. Uh, Jose Luis on the pencils and uh, uh, Jones Trinidad on the inks. Their combination are, is absolutely fantastic. The fight scene at the beginning between Lady Vic and Starfire. These are gorgeous, sexy women. Good lord, they're gorgeous. There's a double page spread here where Black Zero takes, uh, pushes, uh, smashes J- uh, Jason Todd against the wall. It's a double page spread. You're only seeing half of it on the screen here. Absolutely fantastic. The art here is f- just, it's gorgeous. This is gorgeous. I want, I want the DC Summer Event should have this artist. I mean, this is the DC house style. I mean, the pages are fantastic. I mean, they throw out the narrative here. Black Zero was holding back. He's clearly, he doesn't want to kill or harm anyone. Uh, so he's holding back his powers. Blackfire uh, clearly has a master plan to sort of take over the Earth in order to prov- in order to utilize the Earth forces, I guess, to prevent a, an attack from the Citadel. Because the Citadel is the, emer- the Citadel is an, uh, a classic enemy of uh, the planet of uh, Tamaran. Uh, and yet it's the Citadel, the Citadel were the, were the alien forces that initially used to experiment on Blackfire and Starfire. And they're going to be, they're attacking the earth at the end of this narrative. But the, but the art here is just incredible, just incredible. I mean, Lady Vic is kick-ass. I didn't, I've never, I've never thought of Lady Vic as being this gorgeous or sexy or kick-ass. But her and I look at her and Starfire fighting, and I'm thinking to myself, "Get out the mud, ladies!" I mean, this is good. I'd pay, I'd pay, I'd pay money to see that fight. Good God, this is great. Uh, Jose Luis on the art is fantastic. The backgrounds are fantastic. This alien attack. I mean, all of this. This is just gorgeous, gorgeous layouts. So, uh, this continues to be. By far the best Titans uh, comic. Uh, this is kicking butts off Titans, uh, Teen Titans Academy, Titans United. I wish this was. I hope this is this a series or is this? Oh no, it's only only one more issue left. I wish yeah. this was a series. This I really wish this was a series uh, because this is fantastic. I'm loving this. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they wrap it up with only one more issue. Uh, all right, Justice League annual. Number one, Justice League 2022 annual number one is the last book. It's called The Return from writer Brian Michael Bendis. Art by Sanford Green. Colors by Matt Herms and Sanford Green. Colors by Josh Reed. Uh, So you remember what I said about the Batgirl art with the uh, black ink spatter all over the place? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, this one does it even more uh, from Sanford Green. So... That coupled with kind of a, I don't know, a, a muted palette, the art just didn't work for me here. It didn't feel super heroic. It felt kind of dystopian. Uh, the story for me didn't really work either. It, it feels like the only reason this annual exists is because they haven't put out a story with OMAC in it in a while. Um, the most interesting part of the story all happens uh, off panel, I feel like. There's a, a moment where hot girl disappears and she's gone for 45 seconds. We're told, Um, but she basically saves the day and solves all the problems in the issue and then comes back and says, Hey, I'm back. Oh, you're only gone for 45 seconds. Oh, for me, it was like a really long time, but I fixed everything. Um, 
I want that story. <laughs> I want that story. Not, not, I mean, it seems Bendis has been doing this a lot lately where it, it, all the interesting stuff seems to be happening off panel and we just hear characters tell us about it rather than actually seeing it happen. So I know you said that you liked this a lot. Um, I think we're, we're opposite. I, I liked the, uh, the regular issue this week much more than I like this. Um, now, yeah, this for me was a was a bit of a miss. So, uh, what were your thoughts? Well, uh, I I think that uh, this is the first uh, sign that I'm that I got from Bendis that he's actually, uh, you know, I took my time with this and I I read it, I read it twice. I actually found myself enjoying it. He's actually weaving three intricate plot lines here, and he actually I thought he does it. He does a he does he's done his best job yet, in my opinion. Okay, now I realize we're talking about Bendis, and I, I'm not giving the guy a lot of compliments. Uh, uh, quite, a, but there, there's, there's three different. There's this guy named Epoch, Epoch, he, Epoch. He's the Lord of Time, and he basically is. He gets caught in a. Basically, he's, uh, he gets caught in what he calls a time pop, and, uh, and he ends up, uh, he ends up basically appearing in, 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 th- in three different places on the Earth, and he's, it's, it's, it's creating a, a trinity loop, and so this thing is. So initially, if if you just skim read this, you're going to be confused because it starts off at the beginning with Olmac in the future. Uh, Olmac is a field enforcement agent for the Global Peace Agency. He exists in the future where the Earth is taken over by evil corporations. And I guess Hawkgirl ends up in this future. And of course, uh, she ends up coming back to basically save the day. But there's... Uh, while all these time loops are, go- are are going on, and this this epoch epic char- epoch character is being uh, is is showing he's in he's in different places at once. He's uh, he ends up meeting Wonder Woman, Hippolyta, and Naomi. End up uh, investigating uh, one of the locations of Epoch in the, in the Legion of Doom in the swamps of Louisiana. Black Canary, Green Arrow, and Aquaman are end up at Blackgate Prison, and. Um, and then uh, Black Adam uh, ends up investigating. He's he he, he ends up meeting up uh, with another version of Epic uh, in Leviathan, the the fallen empire of Leviathan, and so all these different epics, ep- epoch characters, they need to be basically uh, they need to be taken out or sent back to their time. And uh, this the, the, this was a, this is a long story, and, and a lot takes a lot happens, but. You know, he even has Batman tell Kendra, like, remember this place, remember this time, so you know how to get back here. Because Batman already anticipates that, you know, that uh, Kendra might end up being sent back in time. I mean, there's there's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, not enough, uh, you know, uh, I will say that um, in, in all three places, Epic is in Louisiana, Blackgate, Empire, Leviathan. Epic explains that he's, he's misjudged a, me- a measure. Uh, and so he ends up in this Trinity loop and it sort of reminded me of Bendis. There's a past issue of Justice League where Flash screwed up the math and they ended up on Naomi's homeworld or they ended up with uh, not, they had to get away from Naomi off of Naomi's homeworld because math screwed up, uh, Flash screwed up the math. Well, in this case, Epic screwed up the math as well and ended up screwing up the time screen. And the most significant aspect to here is that items are lost in the time stream and they need to be recovered. And uh, one of the the items that they need to recover are are inside a beast at Blackgate, inside the Legion of Doom, and in and some were located in the Empire of Leviathan. And 
Now, ultimately, Kendra shows up. Now, we have a Duke Ek Machina ending. Kendra just shows up, has a device, uses it on Epoch, send, an, an, an epoch sends him back, in, 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 back to the future, and somehow destroys the Trinity Loop. And then, but before Epoch leaves, he warns Batman and he says to Batman that he warns him about the gold lantern. And of course, you know, what's the gold lantern? Batman doesn't know what it is. And of course, that's the lead in to the uh, Legion of uh, Legion of Superheroes. But there's some tidbits here that I want to focus on here real quick. Okay. Wonder Woman refers to Cassie as her kin, implying that Cassie is a family member, which tells me then that in this continuity in the DC Omniverse, Wonder Woman must still be the daughter of Zeus, because I think that's always been an open question, but she is in fact the daughter of Zeus, just like Cassie is, so they must be half-sisters. Naomi texts Cassie that she's surprised to be on the Justice League. Naomi is always doing this. Naomi is always surprised, and is, is always surprised. And uh, Naomi even challenges Wonder Woman in this issue, which I thought I thought was kind of interesting because I, th- I think it's a little bit uh, <laughs> a little bit out of character that Naomi is 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 challenging Wonder Woman. I guess not a big deal. I found it laughable that you know Black Adam ends up looking at the fallen Empire Leviathan. You and I reviewed every issue of check of Leviathan Checkmate. Nowhere in there do I ever recall the 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 country of Leviathan being destroyed. I don't recall it being attacked. I don't recall it being devastated. Who destroyed the Empire of Leviathan? I don't recall there being a war in Leviathan, the former Markovia. So maybe somebody in the chat can can tell tell me when it happened that Leviathan was destroyed. That Black Adam, at some point in this issue, is he's looking over this just all this this destruction on Leviathan. It's it's horrible what he's he's looking over. It's like really. So I, I don't quite get that. I, think, I, I do. I I think it. It was, but again, I, I think it was referenced. I think we never saw it, but Bendis referenced it again in a case of him having characters tell us about action rather than showing it. It's exactly right. We're also told here that apparently, sometime in the future, Naomi's going to become Queen Naomi. She's going to be referenced as Queen Naomi in the future. So obviously it's it's Naomi. So she's got to have an awesome future because every every new character that Bettis introduces is the bestest ever. And so it's you know Queen Naomi is is you know she's you know she's going to be queen. She's going to be a queen one day. And also we were told that Black Adam is going to be a great iconic hero in the future. The Great Adam. Um, we know that Lobo will one day have a third wife named Dove. <laughs> we know that Black. Black Canary, in my favorite, one of my favorite parts, Black Canary calls John Kent Super Kid, <laughs> which is good. She doesn't call him Superman. She calls him Super Kid. And I like that because he is still a kid. And uh, Hawk Girl, at the end of the story, w- which I, I found astonishing, refers to Omak as the greatest man I've ever met, hands down. And that's, a, that's an exact quote. So for Hawk Girl fans, uh, prepare to be shocked that Hawkgirl, the greatest man that Kendra has ever known, isn't Hawkman. No, 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 no. It isn't Martian Manhunter, who she had a relationship with in Snyder's Justice League run. It's Omak. I will, yeah, but I will say that Martian Manhunter is not a man. He's a Martian. (laughs) So, maybe. But is, I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah, but in any event, so there's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff happening in this issue, and I, you know, there's a lot of potential hints as to what's going to be coming, and 
Uh, again, you know, I, I think it's kind of a throwaway issue a little bit, but it, it, it had its moments and it was entertaining and it was definitely one of the best, uh, better, uh, better Bendis story, Justice League stories to date. So I'm actually, I'm actually content with the Bendis Justice League stories this week. God forbid. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I tried to like it, uh, because I am a big fan of OMAC, uh, classic Kirby creation. I love the Dan Didio new 52, uh, Dan Didio and Keith Giffen, new 52 era, uh, OMAC. But uh, just not enough, too much of Bendis telling us rather than giving us the action in this one. I just, it just didn't, just didn't do it for me. I, I, and maybe that's on me. You know, I'm focusing on what we didn't get in the story instead of what we did. Because you're right, there is a lot here. Um, but it just, man, it, it, that moment of Kendra disappearing and coming back in a, in a new and interesting costume. And it's like, man, why didn't we, we never get any of that from him? So. Uh, anyway, there are a few other books. We reviewed all of the individual issues except for Batman, Scooby-Doo, Mysteries, number 11. There are some collections coming out this week, some pretty big ones. Oh, I'm sorry. There's also the Harley Quinn animated series, Eat, Bang, Kill Tour, number six, that reprints the digital first series. Uh, but as far as collections, we have Batman, volume two, the Joker War trade paperback. So um, this, it's the second part of the Joker War. Then we've got... Uh, Detective Comics Volume 1, The Neighborhood Hardcover, which is the first of Mariko Tamaki and Dan Mora's work on the series, which Rocky and I both really enjoyed. Uh, also, The Justice League uh, by Scott Snyder, Book 3, Deluxe Edition, which finishes up his run on the series. There's a Legion of Superheroes Before the Darkness Volume 2 hardcover, which is um, collecting a lot of those issues right around the 270s, which is... Really nostalgic for me because that's right around the time that I first started reading Legion Superheroes. So that that's fantastic stuff. And then speaking of Mark Russell, we had a, a, a really enjoyed his work in Batman: Urban Legends this week. His Flintstone series is, uh, in its entirety, is collected in a deluxe hardcover uh, edition for uh, for DC this week. So, so a few other collections and whatnots for you this week from DC. Big week as always. Plenty of Batman, uh, but plenty of other good stuff too. If you had to pick a favorite this week, Rocky, uh, what do you, what did you like best? Oh boy! Uh, wow! Um, wow! I know it's tough. Right? I would. Um, I would. I would say that uh, it's a tie between Titans United and Blaze. Titans United was really good. I really enjoyed it. It was just fantastic. The art just was blew me away, and I loved the story. And Blaze, the Suicide Squad, Blaze, I just really enjoyed that. Yeah, the Suicide Squad, Blaze, was definitely the most original, uh, most refreshing book this week. Uh, but, man, I, I really liked Joker, and the the Batman, Shadow of the Bat story continues to be really, really good. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think I got to go with Joker number twelve as as my favorite, just barely beating out beating out Blaze. Um, yeah. But yeah, all in all, a, a really a really strong week. So uh, don't forget everybody about our uh, our Spawn Daily that continues uh, ongoing. We're reading all of uh, of the original series of Spawn, trying to get caught up and and be able to get even more out of the the other Spawn related titles like King Spawn, Gunsinger Spawn, The Scorch that's coming out from Todd McFarlane. I have been blown away. If you haven't been listening to the the Spawn Dailies, I've been blown away by how well it holds up. I, I am sucked in. Like, even if I wasn't doing the podcast, I would finish reading Spawn, like, all the way up through uh, the current issues. It is so much better than people give it credit for. 
the tension and the drama and the art, especially the artwork, are just fantastic. So encourage you all to join us uh, for those as they come out daily. Also, tons of interviews coming up. I recently had a great interview with Jerry Conway. Uh, Christopher Priest was on the show. Um, recently spoke with the girls from Hex Comics about Hex 11, which is uh, a self-published book that's very near and dear to my heart. So uh, there's a contest in that episode as well, so you can win the, uh, a copy of the latest issue. Uh, and you can also find out how to get a free trade paperback of Volume 1. Uh, it's not free to me. I'll buy it for you, but if you want to know how to do that, definitely go check out that issue. So lots of content, lots more interviews coming up. Um, so be sure you're following us uh, over on the Comic Source, the audio-only side. Just go to your favorite podcasting app or platform on your smart device. Do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. Make sure if you're listening to us on the audio only that you also subscribe to Rocky's channel, Comic Boom on YouTube. It's Comic Space Boom exclamation point. Ring the notification bell, subscribe, like this video so you know when new content comes out. Uh, you have any other uh, new episodes or anything recently you want to uh, let everybody know about, Rocky? Uh, well, I, I did do my uh, I did do my toilet top three along with my three laxative runner runners up for uh, DC Comics uh, because I uh, you know I've been uh, I've been staying fairly positive with DC I think we both have uh, but every, you know I think every now and then it, it's worth you know every now and then I'm I'm good for a rant <laughs> so I rant a little bit and uh, I I am going to be doing a deeper dive into Justice League Incarnate and uh, that'll be coming out probably in the in the next few days and. I got a couple of surprises that I'm working on and I'll just leave, I'll leave it at that. I'll, I'll let people be, I encourage people to hit the subscribe button. Like you said, uh, to my comic boom, uh, YouTube channel. And, uh, you know, you'll be surprised every now and then I'll throw a good rant video on there and you'll, you'll get something out of it. <laughs> yeah. We, and we know that we still owe you guys one of our most popular episodes we do every year, which is the comic source awards. It's coming. I promise you. Yeah. Uh, we're just trying to get our schedules to line up because that's always a, a long episode. So anyway, it'll be coming soon. Got to do it soon. <laughs> before I read so many 2022 comics. I forget what happened in 2021. So uh, look for that coming up fairly soon. So uh, once again, we want to thank everybody for joining us as always. And we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.